Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether it's a problem if I produce this show for a bunch of unconscious virtual listeners, while you all listen to an almost identical show produced by an unconscious virtual host. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. All efforts to improve the world have to take some stand on the question of what is ultimately of intrinsic value, or theory of value, as the field is called in moral philosophy. When we try to do good, we usually have some immediate goal in mind, like, say, uh, causing someone who is very poor to receive some money. But someone having a bunch of coins and paper notes isn't valuable in itself. That's just obviously a means to an end. If we repeatedly ask why something is desirable in order to dig deeper into why we're doing what we're doing, for instance, asking uh, why is it good for someone who is poor to have more money, we'll eventually hit the bedrock of an intrinsic value. For instance, you might answer that someone who is very poor having more money is good because that will allow them to buy things that will prevent them from suffering. Then you could ask, why is it good for someone not to suffer? But if, like me, preventing suffering is something you think is intrinsically valuable, you'll no longer say that it's good for someone not to suffer because it provides some other benefit. Rather, it's valuable for someone not to suffer just because suffering itself is bad, and that's that. But of course, people have all kinds of varying ideas about what things are intrinsically valuable, that is, valuable for their own sake, even if they achieve nothing else. Intrinsic values that have been proposed include preventing injustice, satisfying people's preferences, being cooperative, having greater social equality between people, helping someone achieve their full potential, making people happy, making happy people, uh, and I'm sure you can think of plenty of others. These different answers to the question of what things are ultimately of value might lead to very different ideas about the most impactful actions that one can take to improve the world. So getting clarity on which answers are plausible and which aren't might be of huge importance. Today, for the first time on the show, we tackle value theory head-on for a full episode rather than just nibbling at the edges. And we do it with Sharon hewitt Rowlett, philosopher and author of The Feeling of Value, Moral Realism Grounded in Phenomenal Consciousness, which was just released as an audiobook. Sharon and I dive deep into philosophical hedonism, a theory of value that is as old as the hills, but which has been out of fashion until experiencing a resurgence of interest in the last decade or two. It's a school of thought I am pretty sympathetic to personally, and believe deserves a wider hearing that it's currently getting. But of course, we leave plenty of time to consider the major objections in the second half of the conversation. FYI, Kieran and I are currently looking out for some additional help with our audio engineering, which I'll say a little more about in the outro. But now, with that bit of exposition out of the way, I bring you Sharon Hewitt-Rollett. Today, I'm speaking with Sharon Hewitt-Rollett. Sharon is a writer, philosopher, and consciousness researcher. She did her PhD in philosophy at New York University in one of the world's top few philosophy departments, where her advisor was Thomas Nagel, who will be known to many listeners as the author of What Is It Like to Be a Bat? Her dissertation won the NYU Dean's Outstanding Dissertation Award and went on to be published in 2016 as the book The Feeling of Value, Moral Realism Grounded in Phenomenal Consciousness, which is the topic for today's conversation and was just released as an audiobook read by the author herself. Thomas Nagel said of the thesis, This is a radical and important philosophical contribution and the work of a natural philosopher. It's the kind of muscular, intuitively motivated philosophical stance that brings the subject to life. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Sharon. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. To give you a bit of context for this episode, I've been hearing the basic thesis of metaethics that you're going to lay out today in various different iterations and versions for about uh, 15 years. And I, as far as I know, the simple underlying idea goes back to more or less the earliest records we have of people engaging in moral philosophy uh, at all. I'd say among philosophers that I know, it's regarded as the most promising approach to justifying a serious moral realism, with in fact there not being that many other uh, compelling options uh, on the table. 
But despite that, it's strange how little the ideas in your thesis, I, I think, get, dis- get discussed in the mainstream, mainstream and, and, and how few clear and well-argued write-ups of the topic are available out there. So it's, it's a great relief to me that your dissertation actually got published and is now out as an, as an audiobook as well. Uh, and I hope we'll get to see many more people join in, inspired by the book, hopefully to join in and explaining, developing and critiquing the, the, the ideas in it uh, in the years to come. So today, I hope we'll get to talk about the relationship between morality and subjective experiences, as well as the best objections to hedonism. But first, let's start at the beginning. What is the question metaethics is trying to answer? Well, it's trying to answer this question of whether there are objective moral truths, whether morality is something that is just a matter of opinion or preference, or whether it's something that could justify those opinions or preferences in some way. The basic question is, are there objective moral facts? And then depending on how you answer that question, uh, so if you say, well, there are, well, then I think there are a lot of epistemological questions that come along with that. Okay, so then how do we come to know about them? What kind of connection do we have with them that can give us knowledge? And if we say, well, no, there aren't objective moral facts, then what exactly is it that we're doing when we're doing ethics? Hmm. Is it just our desires, our preferences? Are we doing something more complicated? Are we making statements about our desires and preferences? Or are we just expressing them? You know, they're all different ways of explaining an anti-realist view in that area. Yeah. So the professional philosophers might not like might not like what I'm about to say because it'd be too imprecise. But I suppose all the time people are saying things like this action would be wrong or it would be good if if X happened. And mentor ethics, to some extent, is saying, you know, are those claims like scientific claims? Is it like doing chemistry where you're trying to answer a, a natural question about the world in the same way as when we do science? Or is it more like the definition of a word in language? Uh, is it just kind of a matter of convention in that way? Or are these kind of analytic truths like something that you could figure out through pure reason, like like in like in mathematics? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or is it something else entirely? Or is there just or are we just confused and there's no fact of the matter? Right. I think if you ask a lot of kind of 10-year-olds, and, and indeed, I imagine most adults, perhaps, I think that they would have a strong sense that some things are just clearly good and bad and some actions are just right and wrong. The the intuition is just so strong about that, Mm -hmm. that it might not feel like it's a very kind of uncertain issue that is calls for all of this really extensive philosophical debate. If someone out there in the listening audience doesn't feel like there's a mystery here, what can you say that would help to uh, prompt the intuition that actually there is something a bit puzzling about morality and normativity, as we we call it? Well, I think probably... The puzzling starts when you start to realize, you know, as you get older and you have more experience of the world, you start to realize that people disagree with you about what is good to do in certain situations or what kinds of, Mm. yeah, acts are right and wrong. So when you're confronted with moral disagreement, you know, if you're moderately self-reflective, like, okay, well, if not everybody believes the same thing, why do our beliefs differ? And is there any way that we can adjudicate and decide, well, who is more likely right or wrong on this? Or even is there a, a right or wrong? I mean, mm. if it seems like there's just moral disagreement that we can never get rid of, then maybe we're not talking about something real. Right. Yeah. So I suppose you know, each of us maybe individually has extremely strong reactions about particular things being good and bad or or, or right and wrong actions, uh, and that might then feel, and that those intuitions themselves might feel like enough evidence. But then, when you when you meet other people who have conflicting intuitions about that, and you have to say, well, if the intuitions were just sufficient to ground these these beliefs, then the fact that someone else has opposite intuitions really creates a problem. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially when you start taking philosophy classes and you start interacting with philosophers. I mean, you get people with very different views, very different intuitions about these things, and very different ways of justifying their intuitions or their views. Yeah. So 
people make all kinds of claims about what is right and wrong and what is good and bad. Why are you skeptical about, I guess, most moral theories or most most meta-ethical theories as a, on, on the whole? Yeah, so we should make a clear distinction between normative ethical theories and meta-ethical theories, right? So normative ethical theories are like first-order theories where we're talking about what is right or wrong, what's good or bad. And then the meta-ethical theories are the next level. It's talking about, well, what would make those first-order judgments correct or incorrect? Or what is their meaning? What, even this question of, well, where do our moral concepts come from? What, what is it that we're talking about when we're talking about ethics? Yeah. You think that all of these like appraisals are not necessarily reliable in themselves? No, I don't. And part of that is because of the vast moral disagreement that we have, not necessarily on core issues. There, there are some areas where people generally agree, but then you have plenty of issues outside of that core where people don't agree. And certainly one that's very salient right now in the U.S. is the abortion debate. Mm. So when you're dealing with issues like that, where you have people with very different views, then there are more levels than just the normative and the meta-ethical level, right? So we can have these, I guess our first order judgments are really like this particular act is wrong or this particular kind of act is wrong. And then above that, we can have some more theory level judgments, some more general judgments about what kinds of things like, so we, we might not be talking specifically about the moral status of fetuses at this point, but we might be talking about human life in general, or we might mm -hmm. talk about life in general. And we're still at the normative ethical level, but each time we sort of move up another level level of generality, I think we're trying to help ourselves understand why would abortion in certain cases be right or wrong? How can we connect our feelings about why one thing is right and wrong with our feelings about how something else is right or wrong? We seem to have this mm -hmm. idea that we need to systematize our moral beliefs and our intuitions. And that's something both realists and, and anti-realists in this debate seem to agree on. We, we sort of have this natural tendency to want to have very systematic intuitions. And I think part of that is because mm. we do naturally think that we are getting at a truth of the matter. Because if you're, if you're mm. aiming at truth, then you do think that there's going to be a pattern to the way morality works. It's not just going to be random. Well, you know, if Joe Schmo does such and such, that's bad. But if I do it, then it's good. No, we think we have to look at it in a more systematic way, because there's something about those actions themselves that would make them right or wrong in Joe Schmo's case and in my case. Yeah. So especially in the modern era that there's been, I guess, a, a movement in favor of non-realism or anti-realism about moral claims, saying that in, that in some sense, these claims are not factual, that there's not a fact of the matter, or at least that there are no judgment-independent facts about what is good and bad. So potentially it's all just a matter of what we believe or, or, or happen to feel about things. But many people in that, in that camp have argued that that actually doesn't make any practical difference, that we shouldn't find it so troubling that there are no judgment-independent facts about what is right and wrong. Why do you think it does matter? This is a difficult one to answer because mm. for myself, I feel like it's a motivational issue. So reflecting on it my own self, if morality is just a matter of my preferences or my society's preferences, and you know maybe my preferences under the situation of reflective equilibrium or, or what have you, but still, like ultimately, these preferences come from me, well, it seems like it's going to be really hard to motivate people to do things that we think are right, but are maybe 
asking for some level of personal sacrifice from them. Mm. So certainly in the effective altruism community, you think it's important for people who have a lot of resources to give many of those resources to people who will actually get more benefit from them. Mm. But if ethics is just about our preferences, then why can't I just say, well, you know, I really don't care about poor people. Like, I realize that there are a lot of anti-realists who are very unselfish and have a desire to give to others and to see others flourish. So I'm not trying to say that anti-realists are bad people whatsoever. But from my own like self-reflection on mo- my motivational states. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm a worse person than <laughs> um, all of these people, uh, these anti-realists. But it just seems to me like I-, I don't know how I would, why I would care about ethics anymore. Why I would care about being systematic about the way that I choose what things I'm going to do, and or even care about having ethical debates with people, mm. like. <laughs> it's, we're not talking about anything real. Like, uh, yeah, sh- okay, so you care about, you know, people, you know, in this d- difficult situation, and I don't. And so that's as far as we can go. Yeah. In the book, you introduce this concept of perspectival bias. And uh, yeah. basically, you say, if you believe that there are real facts of the matter, it, that morality is, is a real thing, then you're likely to have a strong inclination to try to overcome your perspectival bias. On the other hand, if you don't, then you probably won't. Yeah. Can you explain what perspectival bias is? Yeah. So that's our natural inclination to value our own welfare or the welfare of those that, you know, we're closer to, whether emotionally or physically, over the welfare of people or other beings that are not as salient to us and that we don't care as much about. So if we do think that, for instance, pleasure, and we're going to get into this later, but that, you know, pleasure is an objective good, that it's objectively, intrinsically good for anyone who's experiencing it, Mm. then when we think about the pleasure or pain of people in faraway lands, we have a reason to represent that pleasure or pain accurately. So if we think there is an accurate way that you can represent the moral value of that pleasure or pain, Hmm. then you're going to constantly be trying to change the way that you're thinking about the way that you're representing those people's suffering to accurately reflect that value, Hmm. because you think it does have an objective value. But if you don't think that it does, then you're not going to. And I think that actually those representations that you have of other people's pleasure and pain are affect your motivations. Yeah. Hey, listeners, a few quick definitions here to, to help you out. When we use the term phenomenal, we don't mean that it is really amazing. In philosophy, phenomenal means that something is known through the senses rather than through thought or intuition. We use the term consciousness all through this interview, which we're using to mean the ability to have subjective experiences, for it to feel like something to be you. The hard problem of consciousness is the problem of explaining how it is that it can feel like anything to to be a person, why it is that there is such a thing as subjective experience. Utilitarianism is a family of ethical theories that all recommend actions that maximize happiness and well-being for all affected individuals considered equally. A pithy, though not very precise, uh, definition of utilitarianism is uh, the greatest good for the greatest number. 
We talk a whole lot about hedonism, which in this case doesn't mean having great parties and enjoying delicious food and going and getting massages and so on. Rather, in philosophy, hedonism is the belief that pleasure or happiness or positive sensations are the highest or the or the only good thing in life, and that suffering is also the the highest or the only negative thing in life. It comes from the ancient Greek uh, hedon, which meant pleasure. Sometimes for clarity, uh, that position is called philosophical hedonism to distinguish it from, I guess, the, the party, a uh, good, happy lifestyle uh, hedonism. Finally, we talk about egoism or egoistic utilitarianism. Egoism refers to the attitude that only yourself matters. So an egoist would only be concerned about their well-being and, and would give no intrinsic value to the well-being of, of other beings. All right, I hope that helps. Back to the interview. Okay, so with that bit of setup out of the way, let's dive straight into basically the, the theory of moral realism that you put forward in The Feeling of Value. Yeah, what, what is your theory of moral realism in a, in a nutshell? It's the idea that intrinsic goodness is an experiential property. So it's something that is a quality of our conscious experience. Hmm. So when you feel pleasure or other positive states like happiness or joy, what you're experiencing is the qualitative property hmm. of intrinsic goodness and in, in philosophy, we tend to call those qualities of conscious experience qualia, hmm. okay? So there are these positive qualia that you can experience, and there are also negative ones that we experience in pain or suffering or sadness, other negative emotional states. And what I'm saying is, it's not just that these are the only things that are good or bad, because there are a lot of people that say that there are lots of people who are hedonists and have been throughout recorded history. But I'm saying something that it's slightly stronger than that, or maybe quite a bit stronger than that, which is that it's not that there's some qualitative phenomenal experience that we have or some property of that experience that we have that has some nature that is then good or bad. Mm. Okay, so it's not that the goodness or badness of this state supervenes on it, as we would say in philosophy, but that intrinsic goodness actually is a qualitative state, a qualitative property. Hmm. So it's actually something that you can observe and experience yourself. And I actually think that if we didn't ever experience pleasure or pain or any of these positive or negative qualitative states, that we wouldn't actually have the concept of intrinsic goodness that we do in fact have and that we do use when we're making moral decisions. Mm. You know, if we didn't have these states, we might still have desires for certain things and we might, you know, still have certain behaviors and go out, you know, searching for certain things. But when we experience pleasure or pain, what we experience is something that justifies the desire or justifies av avoiding a certain thing. So it's, I talk a lot of in the book about the feeling of ought to be-ness. Mm. So, so trying to get at this feeling that when you feel pleasure, you're like, oh, this is why life is worth living. Like, this is what we're here for, mm. right? This is worth having. And when you're experiencing suffering, you're experiencing something th that if this were all there was to existence, mm. was this kind of state, it would be better to be dead. <laughs> like, it would be better not to not be experiencing anything at all mm. because of the nature of what's going on yeah. in that experience. So I think there's actually a conceptual connection here. Yeah. 
So I guess all, all attempts to get more realism off, off the ground face two challenges. One is um, like, what is the nature of goodness and badness? Why would anything be good and bad? And then even if there were things that were good and bad, how would we ever know about it? Uh, given that those facts about things being good and bad don't seem like uh, th- there's no causal connection to our beliefs about them or, or how, how mm-hmm. would our beliefs about them mm-hmm. be causally connected to those facts of the matter? Your theory here helps to address, I think, both of those questions. Yeah. Can you explain why? So... First of all, this idea of how do we even have a concept of moral facts? Well, we have it bec- through these experiences, mm. right? We can, we can experience their value or their disvalue. And then how can we experience the truth or falsity of moral facts? Well, we can directly experience intrinsic goodness or intrinsic badness. That's something that is directly present to our consciousness. Mm. And then from there, we can use the information that we have about the world that we live in to determine, well, which other things are instrumentally good and bad because of the way that they produce this conscious experience. So it gives us a way of picking out in the world, in the in the empirical world, what it is that morality is talking about, what it is that we're getting at in morality. Because so many philosophers have said, well, there's, there's this gap between facts about the way the world is and facts about the way the world ought to be, mm-hmm. right? And you, it was famously David Hume who said, you can't derive an ought from an is. You can't take facts about how the world is. It's often called natural fact, mm. or I think it's more accurately called a descriptive fact in this context. But facts about how the world is and get facts about how the world ought to be. But I think that that's generally true. That's true for every kind of fact about the world except... In these particular experiences of pleasure and pain, I think we see that those two categories come together. Mm. And you can't describe what it is for an experience to be pleasure Mm. without talking about its goodness. Yeah. It wouldn't be pleasure if it wasn't good. (laughs) And And pain would not be pain if it wasn't bad. That's part of what the experience is. Yeah, right. Um, I guess uh, we should be clear that when we talk about pleasure, we're not just talking about you know eating, eating food or something like that. Of course, we, we yeah. can experience a, <laughs> yeah. a, a colossally wide range of different sensations or different qualia, as philosophers call it. And the thing is, some of them feel good. They have this, this they have this apparent property that we can perceive of it being good for to feel that way, it being good for that experience to exist. And others have a negative evaluation. They just through direct acquaintance, as philosophers <laughs> use uh, use that language. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just directly know by being, in a sense, those sensations that they are that they have the property of it being bad for them to exist. Yeah. So yeah, we're, we're going to use pleasure and pain, I guess, or pleasure, pleasure and suffering, but but, oh, but, but yeah. these are very wide ranging terms. Yeah. Well, and I think often by hedonism, pleasure is used as a shorthand for all of these different positive experiences, and pain is used as a shorthand to talk about all of these different negative experiences. And I tend to do that as well because people. People understand what you're talking about better than if you say, well, positive qualia and (laughs) negative qualia. Um, But yeah, it is important to understand that there are a lot of different kinds of pleasant experience that you have. And I think that this same positive quality you feel when you are eating a food that you like, when, you know, you're spending time with a loved one, Mm. um, when you feel like you've accomplished something great. Yeah, I was going to say, like a great career success or something. One of the things that all of those experiences have in common is that positive nature. Yeah. So what is the history of this basic idea in philosophy? So I assume you mean hedonism itself. Yeah, 
Yeah, because I, I feel like the particular brand of hedonism, this sort of, well, not sort of, what, what I call analytic hedonism, this idea that there's a conceptual connection is something I'm not aware of anybody else who actually holds that particular view. But as far as hedonism itself, I mean, it goes way, way back. So at least to ancient Greece, mm. Epicurus and his school of thought. And it was something that even people in ancient times who were not hedonists, they really took the view very seriously. And they thought this is something that they have to argue against if they're going to say that anything else besides pleasure is valuable. Yeah. So, I mean, Plato talked a lot about it. Aristotle talked about it. But then when you come, you know, closer to the present day, this was the, by far the preferred view among the British empiricists. Mm. So you've got Hobbes, you've got Locke, Hume, Bentham, Mill, um, Sidgwick, all hedonists, uh, and then Sidgwick um, a little bit after Mill, yeah, late 1800s. And then you've got some, um, even in the present day, it's sort of, I, I was very excited to discover, honestly, because hedonism and hedonistic utilitarianism were not very popular when I was in graduate school. And that was only, what, 15 years ago? Mm. I mean, this is, at least to me, it feels like not that long ago. But it really feels like there's been a big change within philosophy during that time. And hedonism has become taken much more seriously. But you had mentioned to me, um, actually, as we were preparing for this talk, Peter Singer and uh, I can't remember her name, the Polish philosopher. De Lazari Radek. Yeah. Glad I made you pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that's right. <laughs> um, yeah. They've written a very important book um, on that topic. I think it's great. I mean, it, that's part of what like makes me want to come back and talk to philosophers more because we can actually have conversations about the things that I think are important now. So yeah. Yeah, it seems like basically the, the, the idea has always been there from the beginning, which is no great surprise because it's a very natural idea that, you know, it's it's our feelings about uh, things feeling terrible and feeling wonderful that are the basis of goodness and badness. Of course, someone's going to stake out that position pretty early. Well, and too, whenever we do try to adjudicate our moral disagreements or figure out for ourselves, you know, what should I do in this situation when we don't have you know, a clear intuition about it or doesn't seem to, you know, clearly fall under the moral guidelines that we have embraced, mm. we often turn to this, well, you know, what's going to produce the most pleasure for people? Yeah. So if I kick a rock and then I kick a person and I say, why was the first thing not bad and the second thing was bad? <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious what <laughs> what answer people are going to instinctively reach for. Uh, and so it's yeah. like, it's, yeah, it's, it's very clear how consciousness and subjective experience is, at least for almost everyone, they acknowledge it as a moral consideration, even if they don't regard it as, right. as equivalent um, in, 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 the, in the way that you're suggesting. Yeah. People do seem to have an even stronger conviction about the badness of suffering and particularly, mm. you know, certain kinds of like gratuitous suffering uh, when somebody's torturing somebody just for the fun of it. Like th those are some of the few examples of things that absolutely everybody can agree yeah. uh, are wrong. Yeah, it is interesting. When it, whenever you reach for something that is just like so bad that you could just use it as a clear example and no one's going to debate it. I, th I feel it's like, yeah, you reach for like torturing a baby where there's, where there's no conceivable benefit right. that can be gained. Everyone disagrees that that, uh, that has to be wrong. It, it, is, it is interesting that this thread, it was a big deal in ancient philosophy and it's kind of always been there. And in the 19th century, it was huge. And it seems like the 20th century was a real doldrum uh, period for, for hedonism. And, then, yeah. uh, and, and interestingly, it was also kind of a doldrum period for the hard problem of consciousness, which, which we might come back to later. Yeah, I don't think that's an accident. Yeah, no. <laughs> right. And then in the twenty, like in the, in the twenty first century, we're seeing kind of a real resurgence of of interest uh, in in both. I mean, and, and outside of philosophy yeah. as well, I think uh, 
Sam Harris, for example, has put forward a pretty similar, pretty similar set of ideas in, in the moral mm-hmm. landscape, which, uh, which was a pretty widely selling book. Just real quickly on that sort of doldrum mm. period, um, I feel like there are various reasons for that that people have put forward. But I think one that people haven't talked about that much is this link to skepticism or limitivism about consciousness. Mm. This The whole behaviorist turn in psychology, people just didn't want to talk about mental states, and they certainly didn't want to talk about what mental states felt like from the inside. <laughs> yeah. It's not scientific enough. No, which which is very strange because our own mental states are the thing that we are the most directly acquainted with. Any kind of observation that we do has to start there. Like if we can't read the results on the machines that we're, you know, making scientific observations with, <laughs> we're not able to observe, we're not able to do science without our consciousness. So I don't know, it's just always seemed very strange that we wouldn't take that seriously. Yeah, it is very interesting that you, we can take almost two diametrically opposed perspectives on our subjective feelings and experiences of things. One is kind of the, the the Cartesian view that this is the only thing that I can be sure about. It's like everything mm-hmm. else could be a lie, mm-hmm. but I know that I'm at least experiencing what I'm experiencing. There's no way I could be mistaken about that. And the other is that because there's no way of investigating at least the feelings or the subjective experiences of others, it's a non-scientific realm. Maybe it doesn't even exist. It's like deeply weird and deeply suspicious. <laughs> and this is not a topic that serious people should be thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's do a whole bunch of clarificatory work here because I wrote in my notes here, I feel like the English language is almost like overtly hostile <laughs> to talking very clearly. <laughs> I, I love that phrasing, by the way. I think that's that's true. Yeah, it just... So basically, the concept of good and right is so fundamental, I think, for us as human beings. It's it, and, it, and it pervades our life in all of these different ways that we have this common word good and value that is kind of used to incorporate all kinds of different goodness and all kinds of different value that then makes it extremely easy to talk past one another when, when, when you start use, using these terms. Yeah. So, so one of the first distinctions we really want to make is the difference between intrinsic value. I think sometimes my, my, my friends call it terminal value mm-hmm. uh, and instrumental value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you explain the, the difference between those two? Yes. So Intrinsic slash terminal value, and I think actually think we should make a distinction between those, but for right now, we'll put them in the same category. Those are things that are valuable as ends in themselves. Mm. You don't want them because they are going to get you something else down the line, but because of their own properties. Whereas instrumental goods are things that you don't really care about having them uh, just for themselves, but because they'll they'll produce something else good for you. Yeah. Now, the reason I say we should distinguish intrinsic and terminal goods is because Anti-realists will sometimes, they'll say something is good as an end in itself, Mm. but it's not because of the intrinsic properties of the thing. Mm. The goodness of the thing is still dependent on somebody's desire for it or preference for it or, you know, the way that it figures in their attitudinal system. Mm. So you could have a terminal good that I would say is not actually an intrinsic good. Some anti-realists would use the term intrinsic in this case. But I think I like to reserve the term intrinsic for something that's even stronger. It's something that is good purely in virtue of its own properties. I see. Yeah. So... I think, yeah, when I kind of present this idea that, you know, goodness is just is just about pleasure versus suffering, I think a very common response I get is something like, I, I can think of a time in the past when I suffered, but I think that that was, that that was good for me, uh, all things considered. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you saying that, uh, yeah. that I'm wrong about that? Yeah, can, can you explain what's, what's, what's going on there? Yeah, no, suffering can be instrumentally good. And actually, I think that that's probably one of the reasons that 
you know, we do suffer as much as we do because our bodies and our brains are trying to send us signals that we're doing something wrong and we need to, or something wrong is happening and we need to fix it if we're going to, you know, survive into the, and flourish in the future. So if you're suffering because of, I mean, they're, they're various situations. So let's take first one uh, situation where you're suffering because of, I don't know, a bad romantic breakup or something. Mm. It's important for you to feel the negative effects of a broken relationship. We are social creatures. We need to know how to have positive relationships with each other. We need the help of others in order to, you know, to survive and to thrive. So it's good that our bodies and brains let us know it's not it's not good that you you have this rift between you and this other person. Mm. Now, maybe in the long term it is, you know, you needed to break up with this person and you'll be better off. Mm. But, you know, your 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 emotional system is reacting to the fact that evolutionarily it's important for you to have good social relationships. Okay. So that's that's one way in which it could be important. But I think also when people say, well, my suffering was good for me, they're also talking about character building, hmm. right? Like it made me a better person. And I think that's also very important. If, if it changes your dispositions to be more compassionate towards others, or maybe changes your ability to persevere through hardship so that you can meet important goals that you wouldn't be able to meet if you were purely focused on what will bring you pleasure today, mm. then that's going to be instrumentally good. So there, there are lots of ways in which suffering can and, and pain can be instrumentally good. Yeah. So another way, uh, another response that I get, which we'll return to in a whole bunch more detail later on, is people respond and say, are you saying that beauty or knowledge or food or money are not valuable if it's only experiences? But of course, you could respond and say, yes, all of those things are good. All of those things have value. But on your view, on, on this hedonistic view, they're all valuable as a means to an end. Those things are all valuable because they will at some point reduce negative experiences or promote positive experiences. Mm -hmm. So that is going to be kind of intuitive to many people, to a substantial fraction of people, that all of these kinds of things, food, money, beauty, knowledge, relationships, that they're only useful as means to an end. But at least we're not saying that they don't have value. <laughs> they do have value, just, just, just of a different kind. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. I think another distinction that is worth drawing is the difference between... So let's say that you feel a positive sensation, like a, a delicious taste. I feel like you can feel directly that that is good through direct acquaintance. There's a different sense of goodness and badness that we get when we evaluate or consider something and then ask morally, is this good or bad? So you imagine someone punching someone else. There, we might have the reaction that that is, that that is bad, but that is different mm -hmm. because instead we're evaluating a propositional claim. And, and, we, and we might inspect our feelings. We might inspect our subjective feelings as a measure, as a way of trying to answer this mm -hmm. propositional claim about whether an act is wrong or whether an act is good. But I feel like th these are two very different ways in which we get evidence about, about goodness. Yeah, do, do you agree? Yeah, we have the direct acquaintance in the ones, like the intrinsic, the inner feel of what that state is like. Because when you're talking about your own mental states, you know what that state is like from the inside. But when you're talking about, yeah, a propositional claim, or even you're talking about the experiential states of somebody else, like you don't know the inner nature of that mm. directly, but you're inferring the nature of it and you're representing itself to yourself. Mm. But yeah, you're not directly tuning into what it's like. Yeah. Yeah, which is why we have 
moral disagreement and moral error, I think, hmm. is because, you know, we're doing our best to represent the goodness and badness of things outside of us. But when we don't have that direct acquaintance with it, we can often get it wrong. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one final uh, way of using good uh, that I just want to want to get some clarification on is uh, people talk about a person being good. And I think that that is a very different use mm -hmm. of the term good from the one that we're talking about when we talk about experiences being good. In that, when we say that someone is good, we don't mean that they experience a lot of pleasure and are disinclined to experience suffering. <laughs> right. We're, we're, right. we're talking about evaluating their character. We're, we're talking about whether that person is conducive to good outcomes when you have them around, among other things. Yeah, we're talking about their instrumental goodness as a person. Do they make the rest of the world better by their presence in it? Are or I, I mean, if we're consequentialists, okay. Right, yeah. so, but you might also have somebody who, yeah, is is judging their character in a different way. But the point is that what we're doing is evaluating their character, not for the value that it directly brings to the world, but for the way that it promotes value in other ways. Yeah, yeah. and this issue can become particularly stark when uh, you might have someone. Who, in a hypothetical situation, who takes an action that in the immediate term brings about pleasure. But you might say, oh, nonetheless, I have this really strong sense of badness. And often what's going on is that the kind of person who is inclined to take those actions will cause a lot of badness, will cause a lot of suffering in, 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 in broader situations. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's push on and get some more, more details uh, of, of the theory. As the sisters can probably tell, I'm very sympathetic to this theory, or I think it's at least super underrated. So we, we will we will later later on get to a whole lot of a whole lot of uh, potential objections and and rebuttals. Fortunately, if you wanna if you wanna find objections to hedonism, you will not have difficulty finding them <laughs> anywhere on the internet or or in any philosophy course. So to some extent, we can we can take the time here to seriously try to inhabit the view for a minute. So why doesn't our direct acquaintance with positive and negative in feelings imply that the right thing to do is to pursue egoistic hedonism? That is to maximize just our well-being rather than the well-being of, of everyone taken equally? Well, I think there are a few different reasons. First of all, I think that when we experience pleasure or pain or any of these, these normative qualia, we're experiencing that intrinsic goodness or that intrinsic badness directly. And what we're experiencing is the value of it simpliciter like we're not what, what does simpliciter mean just simply like mm. nothing more than that just mm. the value of it so we're not experiencing any implications about what we ought to do about it i mean we could certainly have those in addition but the what we're experiencing in the experience itself is just this feeling that this thing ought to exist or this thing ought not to exist yeah and i think we feel that anything you know once we can you know, have the conceptual ability to think about actions because babies can experience pleasure and pain, mm. but they can't necessarily think about, well, what should I do as a consequence of, you know, feeling this? Mm. Like, I should promote this in the future. They're not thinking that conceptual level yet. Yeah. But once we develop the ability to think about the fact that we might be able to promote this or avoid it in the future, I think when we are having those experiences, we're thinking, well, you know, anybody who had an ability to prevent me feeling this pain or who could help me feel this pleasure in the future, they ought to. There's a reason that they ought to do these things because of the way these things feel. Mm. So from the first person perspective, we think that our pleasure and pain is a reason for other people. I, I think that's part of the, the phenomenology. Yeah. But then the other thing is when we start thinking about what it would mean to say that your experiences are only reason giving for you, we get into these really thorny questions about personal identity. Mm. 
So the idea for an egoistic hedonist would have to be something along the lines of, well, if I'm going to experience that pleasure in the future, then I have reason to bring it about. Mm. But if it's going to be somebody else's pleasure, I don't have any reason. But that's presuming that there's some way to pick out who you're going to be in the future and that you are in some morally significant way identical to this other experiencing being that's going to experience that stuff. And I think Derek Parfit does a really good job of looking at the concept of personal identity and showing that the best way of thinking about personal identity, the, the way that makes the most sense, is as a reductive view, is a view where... Our identity with ourselves in the future just has to do with some level of continuity between our experiences and our desires and also the fact he thinks that we can't, um, there can't be a branching um, situation going on, but that's not really relevant here. But in any case, he thinks ultimately we should be reductionists about personal identity, and I, I agree with him for various complicated reasons. But if that's the case... I don't think the things that make us say that I'm the same person as myself this time in the future, that those are things that are morally relevant, that those are things that should make it the case that that future pleasure or pain is a reason for me now in a way that it doesn't make it the case that other people's pleasure and pain is a reason for me now. Yeah. But I just don't think that the boundaries of personal identity are... They're kind of, they're vague, first of all, and I don't think that they're morally significant in the right way. Yeah, so I feel like a, a dumber way of saying that the, the first part of that is just, you know, when I'm in pain and I'm feeling this sensation of badness or not to beness, I don't feel like I'm learning from that that it is bad just for me or that it is only bad because it's happening to me. I feel like I'm learning that the experience right. itself is bad, irrespective of what person mm -hmm. it is kind of, it's, 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 it's attaching itself to. And just on the, yeah, on the personal identity point, I, many people here might have heard some of these conundrum thought experiments that, that show up when you try to really inspect, like, what is personal identity? How do we tell who, is this, who has right. the same identity and, and who does not? Unfortunately, we won't have time to go into all of that here. So we'll have to stick out some links to some articles discussing that um, in, the, in the show notes. But more or less, just personal identity, like so many things in philosophy, the more you look at it, the more it, like, your, your, your intuitions and your common sense just melt away. And you find actually, yeah. it doesn't seem like there is any simple fact of the matter about, especially whether you're the same person over time when you change a lot. What if you pass out so you don't have continuity of consciousness? What if there's another person who's extremely similar to you? What if you could run a person on a computer and then you could split the software so it's running twice at once? <laughs> who's the same <laughs> person? So there's all right. of these issues. And then if you've baked identity into your moral theory as egoism does or e egoistic hedonism would have to do then these issues of personal identity are totally devastating <laughs> or, or they or they at least they might just lead you towards nihilism yeah either either you have no reason to promote or you know avoid any sort of for future experience or you have a reason to promote it for anybody who can experience it yeah Okay, so yeah, you have a whole lot more to say on this uh, in the in the book. So people can go away and read that if if they'd like to hear more more details. An interesting aspect of your theory is that it seems like it's saying that there is a single axis of value that all subjective experiences can be scored on. Basically, it runs from very very good, mm -hmm. then it passes through neutral, and then it goes down to very very bad. Why should we think that that's the case? So we're going to take this question in two parts. So I think one part of the question is this. Very common question or this common disagreement within hedonist circles about whether all, you know, pleasures are commensurable or whether there are some pleasures that are qualitatively better than others. And certainly, you know, John Stuart Mill believes now there are higher and lower pleasures and other people even more recently have believed this as well. I think Roger Crisp hmm. um, believes that as well. 
But then on the other hand, we mu- there's this question about whether pleasure and pain are mm-hmm. really commensurable in this way that they can sort of balance each other out. Yeah. So first, let's look at this question of like different pleasures or different pains, honestly. So the, this idea that there's, at least when we stick with one valence, that we have something that is similar across all of them. If we look at pain experiences, I think this is one place where more neuroscientific research has been done. We look at two different kinds of pain experiences or, or negative experiences. So experiences of physical pain or experiences of emotional pain of some kind. We might think, well, those are just, they're just completely different sensory or qualitative experiences. Mm. And yeah, we avoid both of them, but that's the only thing that they have in common. There's nothing that we're sensing, that we're feeling that's the same in both cases. Mm. And I think there's actually significant evidence that would count against that. I think that there are important physiological similarities between these experiences that would support the idea that there is a phenomenal experiential connection between them. So, I mean, one very basic thing is whether you're in physical pain or you are um, in emotional pain, you cry in both of these. So there's this, there's the same physiological thing that is happening. Mm. Okay. I mean, that's not proof, but that's one you know piece of proof. But then when you look at what's happening neurologically, these two different kinds of negative experience actually share similar neural pathways. Mm. Okay. So Jak Pansep is an affective neuroscientist. He's done a lot of work actually investigating how the brain is processing these affects or these feelings. Mm. So his research shows that some of the similar neural pathways that they have are the periaqueductal gray in the brainstem, mm. which is involved not only in physical pain, but it's involved in experiences of intense sadness. Mm. Okay. So you know, there are a lot of differences between what it feels like to be intense physical pain and to be in, you know, intensely sad, but they're both going through this same area of the brainstem. And also I think it's really interesting that a lot of people talk about physical manifestations of their pain, mm. right? So you, of their emotional pain. So when you're really in deep emotional suffering, a lot of times you actually do feel something physical, mm. like things physically hurt on you. Your heart hurting, a lot, you know, people talk about. But also the anterior cingulate cortex, um, which is a known pain center, but it also produces distressing social feelings. Mm. So particularly in animals, when animals are separated from their social groups or ostracized from their social groups, they're going to have this same area of the brain that's going to be involved. And then when we look at treating pain, the same things, oxytocin, endorphins, opiate analgesics, they not only reduce pain, but they also reduce that separation anxiety in animals. Mm. Yeah. So I guess I do find it a bit counterintuitive or at least it's not immediately obvious to me that kind of all of the negative experiences Mm -hmm. that I have just all have this like one common phenomenological property that is badness that can all just be scored on the same thing so we have all kinds of different negative feelings like shame you know like physical pain different kinds of physical pain loneliness Mm -hmm. rejection jealousy and so on on the surface level they have all these specifics that are quite different but you want to say that they all have one thing in common and that is the property of ought not to be-ness yeah, there are plenty and plenty of differences. Mm. They're, they're, these are very complex experiences. There are many layers of different sensations. Mm. Even within physical pain, you can have different sensations if you're being like stabbed or you're being burnt or you know whatever mm. it is. But yeah, there is this one thing that is similar among them. 
Yeah, that, 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 that's common to, to everything. That's all of the negative sensations. Right. I think if I introspect a bunch and reflect on it, then I can kind of see that. Although it's a little bit, because I, I guess we there's a way in which we have like quite poor access, I guess, to, to dissecting all of the different aspects of the sensations that, that pass through it. It is quite interesting how hard it is to break down all of those sensations into their different constituent mm-hmm. parts. So, so I can see it, but I, I don't think I, through introspection I can kind of prove this. But I think the neuroscientific evidence is super interesting. There's actually quite a lot of discussion of how the brain works in the, in the book. And basically you're saying that through all of these negative experiences, we can point to the part of the brain that is getting activated whenever there's a negative feeling, whether it's a social issue or, or loneliness or depression or physical pain, that we can actually see something in the brain that is happening with all of them. And that is potentially the part that is re- producing the negative qualia, the ought not to be-ness. Right. Potentially. I mean, it's it's still not proof because yeah. we don't know what the one-to-one correlations are between the brain states and the affects or mm. the, you know, the qualia that we have. Yeah. But I think that certainly the knowledge that we have about the way that the brain works here doesn't contradict the idea that there's something very similar in these states. Yeah, there's another line of evidence for this that, that I think you discuss in, in, in the book, which is all the time in life, we have to make trade-offs between different experiences that we might have. So we might think, you know, I do, do, do I want to uh, be burnt or do I want to be... St- no, okay. what's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? Right. It's like, okay, do I want to feel lonely at home? Or do I want to go to a party where I know the noise, the noise is going to be too loud and it's going to be like slightly painful? I don't like the music. So you've got kind of two different <laughs> negative sensations that, that, that you could feel that are very different in nature. One more physical, one more, more social, say. Now, those decisions can be very hard, but we do nonetheless manage to make them most of the time. And when one of those sensations is, is like more severe than the other one, then it can potentially be very easy to make a trade to decide which one you want to experience, even though they're very different in their qualitative type. Sure. You might say, well, it's just going to be so horrible to be stuck alone knowing that I'm missing out on the party that I will accept the, the physical pain of the, of, the, of the music that I don't like, say. How can it be that we make those decisions unless there's some way in which we, we assess how those things would feel? We try to project that in our mind. And then there's like some circuit that weighs them on a common scale and then make, spits out a decision. <laughs> uh, it almost right. like, there has to be some point at which they are commensurate, like indicated as commensurate within the brain because we do make decisions mm-hmm. all the time and we don't just get stuck saying it's impossible to decide because these are things that have incommensurable value. So this is called the behavioral final common path, mm. right? That we need some way for the brain's decisions about these things to come produce the behavior. So we need the final path that's going to lead to mm. the particular behavior that's chosen. And one person who's done a lot of research in this area is Michel Cabanac, he's a French um, and then French-Canadian medical doctor. One of the things that he did, and he did many different experiments in this area, is he actually asked people to tell him what their various levels of pleasure or pain were in experiencing different activities. So he he didn't even have to make them imagine it. He had them actually experience different things and then like rate their pleasure or pain in those experiences. Mm. And then... Separately, he gave them again the choice of having, say, pairs of these things that like a sometimes it was a positive and a negative. Sometimes it was two negatives. But he said, OK, you can change the relative amounts that you're going to feel of these things. So how would you prefer what kind of trade off would you prefer between these two things? And the trade offs that the people chose reflected an algebraic sum of the ratings that they had given before. 
Yeah. So they were introspecting, they were rating them, and then those were actually equivalent to the decisions that they were making in choosing the behavior. Yeah. So we do seem able to consciously rate these things, and our behavior does seem to be a result of those those conscious ratings. Yeah. Or at least or there's a causal correlation there. That's super interesting. And, and as I understand it, that so I don't really know that much about how the brain works, but but I, I did read, I think I think it was a book actually about dieting or it was about how we decide what we eat, where um, it was saying mm. basically that the brain generates different options for actions. And then there are particular neurons that fire at different paces, basically, bidding for how much expected reward the brain is anticipating from a course of action. And, and the neuron mm-hmm. that fires faster, it's basically they're firing at a rate that is meant to indicate the expected value. And then the one that is firing faster mm-hmm. is the option that gets chosen. And literally, it, it, it's, <laughs> it, it's not just the ordering. It's like they're, they're providing what we call cardinal value, which is saying it's not just saying that uh, the one that is uh, going twice as fast is better than the one that's going half as fast as the other one. It's saying it's twice as good. The expected reward is twice right. as high. And so uh, you could maybe then vary the length of the, of, of the processes to try to change the trade-off. Right. And, and, and that does seem to be exactly what people are doing in these experiments. And they can do it with very different sorts of activities or pleasures and pains. So uh, there was one case where um, he had people... Uh, make trade-offs between being cold or playing a video game. Mm. So you've you've got presumably a positive for the video game, but a negative for being cold, right? So they're trading off the pleasures and pains in these two cases. But also interesting because one is a physical pain and one is a more mental, Mm. you know, yeah. But then also a case where he had people balancing physical pain and receiving money, Mm. right? So we have, again, it's sort of more... They're an instrumental value um, as against... Cognitive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that too. Mm. And so people were able to make these comparisons. Yeah. Which which makes total sense. Like you were saying, I mean, evolutionarily, like we need to be able to, <laughs> it has to, be so. to rate these kinds of different things. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least it has to be so in an engineering sense of how the brain works. I suppose morally things could be different. But I suppose because of the way that you're grounding your evidence through direct experience, it's very hard for these things to come apart uh, on, your, on your system. Right. Yeah. One thing I want to point out is, so people who disagree and think that there are incommensurable different experiences. So you might say, you know, the joy you get from being in love just can't be one-to-one traded off or, or, or can't be just traded off in this like linear algebraic way against the joy and joy you get from eating food. That is a position that philosophers have staked out. That definitely complicates uh, the hedonistic uh, kind of <laughs> system here. And it also makes decisions much more difficult. But uh, you could still proceed with uh, with a hedonistic theory of value, just with different different kinds mm-hmm. of uh, hedonistic value that you need more complex analysis in order to weigh up. I think the most famous system of this kind, I guess, is John Stuart Mill's kind of higher and lower pleasures. You have this uh, really quite fun right. section of the book uh, where you uh, talk about. So, so John Stuart Mill, I, I think he he would compare kind of base physical pleasures as against the great joy you might get from writing or or reading poetry, uh, for example, or Mm -hmm. or, or appreciating great art. You have some quote from him where he's like, no one could seriously think that just eating a great uh, meal is is the same as as the kind of pleasure you might get from fantastic uh, achievements or, or, or insights. I think your take on this is that maybe he wasn't well, getting but he invited. Doesn't actually, no? He doesn't actually think that nobody could. Okay, no. He thinks that there's a difference between people who are capable of mm. experiencing the higher pleasures and people who aren't. People who aren't capable of experiencing the higher pleasures, they don't know how good they mm. are. And so they might absolutely think that, yeah, right. eating a great meal is, you know, as good as it gets. Yeah, sorry, that's exactly right. And that's right. part of why, <laughs> his argument for why he thinks that 
some pleasures are qualitatively better than others because anybody who can experience both of them mm. will always choose the higher pleasure over the other one. Right, right. And I guess uh, your take on this is that it might not just be the case that some people don't appreciate the higher pleasures that John Stuart Mill enjoyed, but perhaps John Stuart Mill wasn't getting invited to the right parties and perhaps wasn't the kind of person <laughs> who could fully appreciate just a nice meal for its own sake without having to worry about the philosophy of it. Exactly. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, I think it's important to understand there might be a little bit of bias going on there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but a little bit more seriously, that some people aren't as capable of enjoying you know, more base pleasures, as he might put it, because they have a really strong need for intellectual stimulation, say. So they're mm. just, they can go to the same party as somebody else, you know, but they're just not having a good time because, you know, nobody's thinking about, you know, metaethics there <laughs> or something. Speaking from experience. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah, our, our, it's important to understand that Different people aren't necessarily going to know the full range of pleasures. Mm. They're not going to necessarily be capable of the full range of pleasures. And your your personal dispositions are going to affect what you're able to take pleasure in yeah. or not. As someone who I think has a has a great capacity to enjoy both base and higher pleasures, I can <laughs> I can assure you all, both are great and they can be traded off against one another. <laughs> all right. Pushing on. It's good to know. <laughs> you learn you learn so much on this show. Um, all right. Let's talk about some of the key objections that, that people raise against hedonism and against your particular brand of hedonism. We'll basically uh, go through the, the major flavors of, of objection. One very common and strong reaction that people have is that you're saying that knowledge and beauty and good relationships, they're only valuable in as much as they bring about positive experiences for me. Or, or for, no, for, for someone. Or they prevent negative experiences. Right. But I just have this incredibly strong intuition that, no, my relationship with my partner can be incredibly valuable for its own sake, even if it never makes us happy. It's just so important. And it's, and it's really important that people know the truth or that they understand how the world works. And even if it isn't instrumentally useful, even if it doesn't make them happy <laughs> to know the truth, maybe... If it was disastrous to know the truth and caused you immense suffering, then that could outweigh the intrinsic goodness of uh, knowing the truth and, ha and having understanding. But it is in itself good for people to know the truth. Well, how do you react to that? Well, I think that I actually share those feelings to some degree. Mm. Um, and I think that we do actually value things besides pleasure and pain. Mm. And, and by that, I mean that we actually desire things other than that and we would actually make choices sometimes to have those things even if it brings us less pleasure or more pain but i don't think that that means that those things are intrinsically good hmm. that they are objectively intrinsically good it just means that we treat them as something that we we want to get okay but when you're approaching it from this question of, well, but are they objectively good? Then I think you have to look at this epistemological question of, well, if they are, if there's something about the truth or reality or, you know, relationships that is good in itself and not just because of the way that it makes me or anyone else feel, how do we come to know that? How do we somehow get connected to the goodness or badness of that state that is not part of our consciousness mm. that's somehow out there. Right. And I'm very skeptical that that there is a way to do that or that we could be connected to it or that, that it even makes sense to talk about those things being good in themselves. How would they even instantiate goodness or badness? I don't know. 
when we are looking at pleasure and pain, it's really obvious. And even for people to whom it's not as obvious as it seems to me, I mean, they still have, like we talked about at the beginning of this interview, there's still this like conviction. Yeah, pleasure and pain are important. Other things may be important too, but definitely those are important. Mm. And our direct connection to them makes it clear that there's a reason to think we're getting it right about whether those things are intrinsically good or not, because we know about their intrinsic qualities, but we don't know the intrinsic qualities of these other things. Right. Now, I, I do think that it can be instrumentally good for a hedonist to value things besides pleasure and pain, hmm. because a lot of those things are instrumentally valuable, and it might actually be pleasure maximizing hmm. to treat them like they are intrinsically valuable, not just instrumentally valuable, particularly if you think about personal relationships. Okay. So hmm. if, if you're in a romantic relationship with your, your partner and, you know, maybe you're going through some tough times or whatever, if you're constantly thinking, okay, well, the, you know, the only reason this relationship <laughs> is valuable is because of what we're getting out of it. And clearly, you know, we're both you know, you know, suffering a lot. We should just call it quits then you might actually call it quits earlier than if you believed that the relationship was intrinsically valuable, that that might cause you to persevere through some of these things, especially because a lot of, especially with relationships, I feel like a lot of the potential value of them, there's a lot of value right at the beginning of a romantic relationship. And then there's a lot of difficulty when you're adjusting to each other. And then the pleasure, I think, over pain rises again. It, it you know, in, in a good relationship, that's what's going to happen. Hmm. But to get us through that really difficult period of adjusting to one another and learning how to have a close symbiotic relationship with somebody, you have to just sort of be committed to the relationship no matter what. Hmm. It, it, maybe not no matter what, but have a strong desire to continue the relationship for itself. And just imagining what sort of, you know, pleasure that might provide you down the road, I don't think it's necessarily going to be as motivating. Well, especially with relationships, which is, I think, maybe where this intuition can bite strongest for, me, for many people, including me. A lot of the value that you get out of relationships with other people is your willingness to commit to remain in them, even when uh, it's unclear whether they're instrumentally useful. Mm -hmm. You want to think that other yeah. people are going to stick around and that you can trust them. And that's the reason why it's great to think about it in terms of terminal value, because it you're less inclined to spend all of this time questioning whether you should end it <laughs> constantly because it's like right. ceased to be of right. instrumental value. So that's one product. Yeah, and all that questioning is not <laughs> is not useful hedonistically. Not useful. Right, right. Yeah. It makes it harder to coordinate with other people as as we'll talk about later. So, I guess yeah, my reaction to this so so I also have these in, intuitions about things uh, things having uh in intrinsic value other than other than sensations. Maybe not as much as as other people. But my sense of how we come to have these beliefs is that they are in significant part from learned experience that we see time and time and time again that, you know, being trustworthy and knowing, understanding the world and being reliable and, you know, having influence that these things are instrumentally useful because it's just, just so consistently true. And because in our minds, we just blur together all of these different concepts of goodness, as we were talking about earlier, it's just this real miasma <laughs> of all of these different, slightly distinct ideas of goodness. It's like, it's instrumentally good. It's instrumentally good. It's instrumentally good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And, it, it all just, uh, and we cease to be able to distinguish between, or, or at least it becomes very hard to introspect and distinguish between instrumental and intrinsic value. 
yeah. least like that's one possible debunking explanation for some of the times that that that, that we have these intuitions. A counterexample that someone put to me when I when I when I um, put this argument to them is that like maybe that is happening when we talk about aesthetics and beauty and the value of art, but it doesn't seem like almost anyone gets confused about the instrumental versus the intrinsic value of money. Say, it seems like everyone <laughs> understands that money is only instrumentally valuable and that having a bunch yeah. of pieces of paper <laughs> is in itself of yeah. no value. Um, so why yeah, don't like desert get... island wouldn't do you much good? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So why don't people get confused about that one? And I was like, yeah, that's a good argument. <laughs> I'm not sure I know how to respond to that. Well, I don't actually think that the process is quite like you're saying. I don't think we actually start out thinking about them as instrumentally valuable and then sort of getting confused. I actually think, you know, when we learn about the value of different things by what by the consequences that we experience from them, but also by what other people say about them and the attitudes that other people express to us. Mm. So when we do certain things, people express strong disapproval. Mm. When other people express their disapproval of us, we feel a strong negative feeling because it's going back to the social ostracism Mm. sort of thing. Like it's very important for, we're very sensitive to what other people think about us. And so when other people are disapproving of things that we do, we get this negative value associated with those things. Mm. I, I don't think that there's a conscious process of thinking, well, yeah, it's instrumentally valuable. Oh, now I've forgotten. And now I think it's intrinsically valuable. No, I think we just, when we think about certain things, whether they're actions or states of affairs, we have a strong positive or negative feeling. And that leads us to say, well, yeah, it's it's good or it's bad. Like I feel good or bad about it. So that's how I make that intuitive determination for myself. And if you're looking at the difference between money and other things, I think there's also an evolutionary component, hmm. right? So through millions of years of evolution, we have developed positive responses to yeah, being included in the social group, to, you know, mm. doing things that are helpful to our group, and also positive responses, um, I think, to to beauty in certain ways, and, and different things can, they're more, they're more plausible stories about how we have mm. developed those associations evolutionarily. But when it comes to money, this is something, well, everybody in our society knows, well, it's just instrumentally valuable. I mean, that, that's, mm. everybody's going to say that. It's very clear in our consciousness and we don't ha- there's no evolutionary reason for us to have developed this intrinsic mm. you know desire for these pieces of paper yeah or for these numbers on our bank app <laughs> these days yeah i suppose if you take it to a more conceptual level to something that did exist in like our ancestral evolutionary environment mm-hmm. environment which is similar to money, which is kind of power or influence or the ability mm-hmm. to get stuff done, which is kind of what money allows us to do, then maybe at that mm-hmm. higher level of, of abstraction, people do feel like that, like that is intrinsically valuable, sometimes at least. Yeah, it does seem like the feelings get stronger mm. there. I still think, at least in our culture today, we have pretty healthy skepticism of yeah. the intrinsic value of, of the power desire to other dominate people. others in that way. Yeah, yeah but, but we don't have that strong skepticism of, you know, beauty or of social relationships. We still tend to think those are, are generally good things. Yeah. Okay, pushing on. The most famous, and I, I, my guess is the most influential objection to the idea that subjective experiences are the only thing that matter, is the experience machine thought experiment which the philosopher Robert Nozick uh, first published in his classic book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, uh, back in 1974. We need to spend a little while on this one to do it justice. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, first, can you lay out the experience machine example or case? Nozick's presentation of it has various parts and he sort of changes and everything. So I'm just going to kind of give 
an example that I think is most relevant to us here. It's not necessarily exactly how he laid it out. But the idea in general is that if pleasure and pain are the only things that are intrinsically valuable or disvaluable, Mm. then if we had the option of living in a virtual world created by the experience machine that could produce all of the best experiences that we could ever have, some the most or, or just not even the most pleasure, but they could they could produce more pleasure than living in the real world. Mm. Then shouldn't we plug into the experience machine? And Nozick's thought was that most people are going to say, no, you shouldn't. And that that proved that things besides pleasure and pain were intrinsically valuable or disvaluable. Yeah. Okay. So there's various different rebuttals that someone could offer or ways that ways that we could try to tackle this and say does it really show that uh, things other than a subjective experience have value i guess one is to kind of uh use a similar strategy to what you've mentioned before which is to say well maybe that is your kind of propositional feeling about it or maybe maybe that is kind of your reaction intuitively when thinking about this question as a matter of fact but how would you know and uh why why would you necessarily trust the intuitive judgments that come back when you evaluate such a case right is there anything more you want to want to add to that or can we just say well we've kind of uh, used that one already so we, we can always just bring that that up whenever we're considering such thought experiments yeah well no i think it's i think it's very important here and it's something that nozick didn't address when he first put out this thought experiment he took it for granted that if we had intuitions that we shouldn't go into the experience machine that was somehow evidence for the value of reality. But what it really shows is just that we value reality, that we care about reality. It doesn't show that it's objectively valuable. Right. So an anti-realist might say, yeah, the experience machine uh, objection shows that, yeah, that we value other things and that the other things are valuable because they don't see a distinction between what we value and what is valuable. Mm -hmm. But for a realist, yeah, our intuitions might provide some kind of evidence, but they're not. They could be mistaken. Yeah, they could be mistaken. Yeah, right. you might value something, but it turns out, just as a matter of fact, it's not valuable. <laughs> or it isn't. It isn't yeah. actually good. Right. Okay, so that's 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 one line of argument. The next thing is to say, so Nozick, he's kind of said, a hedonistic utilitarian would have to recommend getting into the experience machine. But we have this strong intuition that we shouldn't, which shows that our intuitions are not informed by hedonistic utilitarianism, that there's other stuff going on. Now, that may be the case, but you want to push back on this claim that a hedonistic utilitarian would recommend getting into the experience machine quite forcefully. Yeah, do you want to give, yeah. give, give some, of the, some of the reasons why, in fact, a hedonistic utilitarian would not get into the experience machine, at least not in the cases originally presented? Yeah, so first of all, there are egoistic reasons, right? So if somebody in the real world comes along and says, look, I've got this machine that will give you all this great experience and you never need to be in contact with reality ever again. Uh, I think we would be pretty skeptical about whether we should put ourselves in the hands of this person or this machine. Okay. Mm. So first of all, there are practical questions about is a machine going to be better at looking after our welfare now and into the future And given any problems that may come up, I mean, you know, maybe there's some software glitch and I get in there and really I'm having really terrible experiences, but the experience machine never notices, right? Mm. But there's no way for, because I'm not in contact with the outside world, there's no way for me to signal the fact that things are going very badly for me. Mm. So this idea of being completely helpless um, and... Not only if, you know, our experiences are bad right now, but, you know, maybe after we plug into the experience machine, then, you know, 
a war breaks out around us and, you know, people are coming, they're going to, you know, dismantle the machine or all this stuff. We have no way of defending ourselves because we're not even aware of what's mm -hmm. going on around mm -hmm. us. So certainly having a relationship with the real world mm -hmm. is very instrumentally valuable. Mm -hmm. Now, Nozick wants us to, like, disregard all of those reasons. He wants to say, no, just think about a situation <laughs> where you can be absolutely sure that everything is going to be fine inside the experience machine. Mm. I don't know if we can do that. I don't know if just stipulating, well, you shouldn't care about the, the, these things are irrelevant is going to mean that they aren't affecting our intuitions. Yeah. So, yeah. So you can say in the, in the text setting up the case that you're sure nothing will ever go wrong. You're sure it's going to be great and that you can completely trust whoever's operating the machine and it will never right. break down and there's no need to be in contact with the real world. But we have, through all of the ideas of life, this extremely strong intuition that completely removing our knowledge and agency <laughs> is a bad idea because it leaves you completely right. vulnerable to exploitation by anyone else. And, and if you've right. misunderstood the situation, it could be really wrong. And it's like... The text on the page saying, don't worry about X, Y, and Z, is that stronger <laughs> than our... It's not that reassuring. Yeah. Is that enough to offset our decades of knowledge that you need to take those things into account intuitively? And I think yeah. it's realistic to say probably not. Probably some of those concerns are bleeding over into our reaction, even if you've said they shouldn't. Right, right. And, I, and in a minute, we'll, let's talk about maybe ways that we could help ourselves imagine better what the situation would actually be. But mm. before we get there, there are also non-egoistic reasons, yeah. right, that we shouldn't plug into the experience machine. So the fact that we could actually help other people in the world, that our life might somehow make the world a better place mm. uh, if we don't plug into the experience machine, this is very relevant. Mm. Um, and again, Nozick tries to say, well, just imagine that everybody is in the experience machine, right? Like the, the machines can completely take care of everybody and make sure that everybody is happy, you know, for an infinite time into the future, right? Mm. Like there's nothing you could ever do to make the world a better place. Would you plug in? <laughs> yeah. In that case, like if we think about, well, what would practically have to be true in order for it to be the case that I have absolutely no instrumental value to the world whatsoever? For me to know that the experience machine is going to do everything that I could do or even better than I could do it, I'm going to have to know an awful lot about the world. Like I'm going to have to have not omniscient knowledge, but I'm going to have mm. to know all of the, all of the important facts about the way that reality is, which if you don't know all the facts, I'm not sure how you can know that you know all the important ones, but mm. leaving that aside, but you're going to have to know an awful lot about the world enough to be absolutely certain that there is no problem that will ever come up that those machines will not be able to handle. And also to know that those machines, which are apparently at least as smart as you are, if not smarter, that they're always going to think that keeping you alive and happy is the best thing that they could do with us, mm. right? That they're not going to, at some point, decide that it's not worth taking care of you anymore. Right. So to have that much knowledge about the world, to where you can actually be sure that Nozick's claim is true, if you stay out of the experience machine, what is it exactly that you're going to do? Like, there's yeah. there's nothing else to really learn about the world. There's nothing else to accomplish. Like, you know exactly how to make people as happy as you ever could. Um, <laughs> there's nobody to help. Like, yeah. it seems like, yeah, the best thing you could probably do is, yeah, well, at least have a good time plug into the experience machine. And maybe at least you'll have the experience of, like, making great discoveries or, mm. you know, helping people. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, so, so to set it up more realistically, yeah. So we, we have to imagine a world where basically humanity or civilization has accomplished everything. We've solved science. We've figured out how the universe works. We have machines that are just brilliant that are going to be able to operate the experience machine indefinitely. And they've been running, doing this so reliably for so long that we're mm-hmm. beyond confident that everything is that right. everything is fine in perpetuity. <laughs> and and obviously that these machines are so much smarter and more competent than than we are that there's no way that you could do anything useful, even if there was a problem, because <laughs> they're, they're right. going to handle it far and beyond whatever, right. <laughs> whatever you could do. So you're, 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 right. you're, you're insignificant in this world. In that case, I mean... I do still have reservations about getting in the machine. There's something that feels a bit squicky about it, but it also maybe feels yeah. kind of kind of all right. It's like there's no more work to do. <laughs> it's like, everyone else is great. So why don't I go? Yeah, and, it certainly yeah. doesn't seem like obviously a bad idea. Maybe it could be good. There are reasons yeah. for it. Exactly, yeah. Especially if your life in the experience machine would be just way better. What if you could have a hundred times as much pleasure as you could right. in the real world where just like everything's really mundane in the real world because all of the effort has gone into improving the uh, the experience machine world. Then, I don't know. Sounds sounds pretty good in that case. Yeah, <laughs> so, I think. I mean, yeah, the world would be kind of boring if you already knew and understood everything, right? Right, right, right. So in the original case, the hedonists probably wouldn't recommend that we get into the machine, and so maybe it does comport with many people's common sense. And if we change it enough such that the hedonist does recommend getting in the machine, then maybe many people would be happy to go along with that anyway. So in fact, like uh, right. the intuitions do kind of line up with people's common sense, at least to a greater degree than, than is initially initially appreciated. We should look at examples in real life, like yeah. our, where we actually we actually do something like plugging into the experience machine. So, I mean, when we play video games, when we watch movies, when we read books, uh, yeah. when we sleep, like and we're just in a dream <laughs> world, right? Like we're disconnecting ourselves from the external world. We're disconnecting ourselves from our ability to to help others or you know to protect ourselves in certain ways we we'd certainly become very vulnerable when we sleep for example but we do this in only a partial way we understand okay it's just for a limited period of time and i'm gonna make sure before i go in like everything's okay and Mm. then you know some even when we're sleeping you know some part of us is alert to you know uh worrisome sounds that we might hear yeah uh, these different things and even when we're in a video game like some part of us is you know still um aware of what's going outside going on outside But to the extent that people do get so caught up in these virtual worlds, we do start thinking, well, there's something, there's something Mm, bad about this. Like, yeah, maybe they're, they're not living in the real world anymore. This, this is not good for them. This is not good for society as a whole. Like, Mm. I I think that our intuitions do track the hedonistic Mm. reasons in these real-world cases and in the hypothetical cases, as long as we make them sufficiently concrete. Yeah, exactly. So we're not against people detaching from a perfect perception of reality or a perfect, perfect focus on reality in order to get pleasure. That kind of is, is, is okay within reason. The reason that we don't do that all the time is because of all of these practical considerations, among others, that encourage us to maintain some connection to reality and some agency. Yeah. And to maintain, uh, like, ensure that we're spending some time saning ourselves <laughs> as beings so that we don't, so that we don't die. I think a third line of argument, or maybe a third, a third sort of response, is to say, well, Nozick says that no one, uh, people say they wouldn't get in the experience machine. But actually, if you survey people, <laughs> it's a much more mixed picture than you might appreciate. I saw someone tweeting about uh, some yeah. some philosophy professor tweeting about this a couple of months ago, where they said that you know they had a whole lot of I guess uh, Gen Z students uh, coming in, and and they set up the experience machine a case and said, you know, who would get into the experience machine? And I think half of the students said they would get in the experience machine, and this kind of apparently messed up their lecture. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
like uh, it all proceeds on the assumption that people oh, said dear. that they wouldn't. Um, but of course, you right. know, some people do enjoy living a enjoy uh, a pleasant life, and they might not not share these. Yeah. they might not share these practical concerns quite severely. Yeah, I wonder if that has to do with the fact that we are much more familiar with and comfortable with these sorts of virtual worlds yeah. now and, and certainly you know generation younger than i am is much more comfortable with them than i am yeah we don't have that sort of inbuilt skepticism of yeah i think i mean that makes that. a ton of sense that if through your life a lot of the pleasure you've gotten is from screens of different kinds you say well this is just as legitimate <laughs> as any other kind of pleasure that i've been getting like how is this so how is this so right, right? so that's one thing i think another thing is that yeah. it's becoming easier and easier in the modern world to imagine that before too long we might have machines that could take care of us that could make decisions and could mm-hmm. do a whole lot of work that, that humans mm-hmm. presently do and that we might be able to trust to manage it in a way that maybe in the 70s it seemed more crazy a bit more sci-fi but in fact it actually goes further than that yeah. so uh, people have tried to change the case a little bit to kind of isolate exactly what is it about the experience machine case that turns people off the idea of getting in the machine. And one possibility is that just in general, people prefer to keep the status quo. They just prefer to stay in the situation that they're in rather than take some mm-hmm. leap into a very different world. And so someone did a survey, unfortunately, again, of uh, I, th- I think philosophy students or at least uh, at least American <laughs> university students who may not be fully representative yes. of, the, of the world. They're very an accessible demographic. <laughs> yeah, accessible, yeah. It was a convenient <laughs> sample, as they say. Um, yes. And here they set it up and said, you're just going about living your normal life as you do now. And someone comes to you, uh, some sort of character, and... <laughs> uh, I guess Morpheus, I suppose, and says, uh, as it turns out, um, you're actually living in the experience machine now. And look at all of these magical stuff that I can do uh, so that that you you come to actually believe them and, and trust them. And they say, we check in on people who are in, in the experience machine from, from time to time to double check whether they want to stay in the, in the experience machine. Because obviously we want, we want you to still have some agency and still be able to decide whether you prefer the experience machine on the, or the real world. You have the option now of exiting. I should warn you, though, that the reason you got in the experience machine is that the real world is very bad. <laughs> You're going to suffer a whole lot more. It's very unpleasant. And you don't know anyone there, obviously, because you've been in here with all of the other people who are in the experience machine. Uh, so would you rather just would you rather stay in the experience machine where your life is pretty good or exit to where it's going to be a, a real struggle because the real world's a, a dumpster fire? And in that case, most people say they'll stay in the experience machine. Yeah. Perhaps unsurprisingly, that's certainly my intuition as well. Yeah. But if you value reality somehow more, then it seems like you should have at least a strong, at least if it was a close call, then you might want to exit. Right. And so this suggests that maybe what's going on, at least one aspect of the reason that we don't want to get in the machine is just that we prefer to stay where we are, (laughs) which is a very safe intuition, a very natural intuition for people to have. But also, I think there's something, there's something psychologically useful about that bias towards the status quo, Mm. because I mean, if we're looking at the experience machine case, you know, all of these worries we might have about, well, is it really going to be good in the experience machine? All of this stuff... In the case where we're already in it, we know. I mean, we have, you know, at least so many years mm. of experience. And we're like, okay, well, actually, yeah, the experience machine so is pretty good. Yeah, right. So we're much less afraid of it. Um, and we're much more afraid of the real world because we don't have any idea what that's actually going to be. I mean, we know it's going to be worse, according to Morpheus. Yeah. Some people who say, well, it's just a status quo bias. Mm. I, I think it's almost like they're saying, well, it's, it's sort of irrational. Mm. I don't necessarily think that a bias towards the status quo is irrational. No, so I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. I'll link to a page that describes a kind of a series of these surveys that have been done without, you know, ever slightly tinkering with the setup. I think one that's particularly interesting is a case where someone's asked to decide for another person who has spent half of their life in an experience machine and half of their life out of an experience machine. And they enjoyed their life much more in the experience machine. Uh, and in that case, 
a majority, although I think not an overwhelming majority, say that it's uh, fine to keep the other person in the experience machine, which is interesting. Yeah. Here's another case from a listener, which I find definitely challenges my, my, my hedonistic intuitions. They say, so most people would not wish to swap spouses or kids with a stranger, even if they knew this would have no effect on how happy uh, each person was. Even more dramatically, suppose that one spouse was long ago kidnapped and secretly replaced by a cleverly disguised robot. The real person is then set up in a duplicate world with a cleverly disguised robotic copy of you, and so on. This is clearly a terrible outcome from my perspective, but all the instrumental benefits remain as before. Each robo-spouse provides the human partner with happiness and promotes their moral flourishing. What's missing is the genuine personal connection. Since the loss of it makes no instrumental difference, the value here must be intrinsic. I guess this is, a, this is a remix of uh, objections we've considered before. But yeah, what's, what's your reaction to that? Well, first of all, I'm not sure that they that I share their intuition that this is an obviously terrible thing. It sounds like maybe you do. You well, feel a terrible is a strong word. Worried about but this, but doesn't sound great. Yeah, I, I feel like yeah, like given that pleasure uh, and pain are going to be the same in both of the cases. Yeah, maybe I would choose you know to have my actual spouse <laughs> still there. Um, not yeah, now a robot. <laughs> But again, I'm not sure that that's not just my preference. I mean, if I go through the, you know, the epistemological questions again, and I say, well, you know, it's not bad for anybody. Like, where is this bad badness coming from in this situation? Yeah, I don't like that idea. And it makes complete sense why I wouldn't like the idea. But if I never find out... And life is just the same for both of us as it would be otherwise. I, I don't know. I can't. I can't quite. Don't quite feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah, I don't quite feel the the punch. The issue there. I mean, maybe if we phrase it a different way, because in other contexts, I am drawn to this idea that there's something about relationships or about love, mm. like this ability to care for someone who is not yourself. Mm. That there's something deeply good about that in more than an instrumental way. Mm. One of the things you said you wanted to ask me about today is, well, you know, what do I think is the most likely problem with this view or the, the, the best objection? And I think for myself, it's that I feel this, this strong draw to this idea that somehow truly caring for another person mm. has a value that isn't reducible to just the pleasure that I bring them mm. or the pleasure that it brings me to care for them that there's something else deeply valuable about that. And, you know, the epistemological questions, the meta-ethical questions lead me to think that that, that maybe is a mistaken intuition. That's just, you know, my strong preference mm-hmm. as a human being. Like, we're, we're such social creatures. Of course, we just, we can't get away from this idea that that's important, mm-hmm. you know, love and relationships. If I have any doubt, that's where it is. Because I think it's really important to ask these epistemological questions and these metaphysical questions. Mm. But at the same time, we do have to recognize our limitations mm. in understanding the world. And just because I can't conceive of a way in which those things could be intrinsically valuable and somehow I'm responding to actual value in desiring them doesn't mean that it couldn't be possible. And maybe if we were much smarter or we were able to experience the world in a more holistic way, Mm. instead of being, you know, isolated in our own little conscious minds, maybe it would make sense to us. Yeah. Well, that's a very interesting point that uh, I suppose within your framework, if you were a robot that could think but couldn't experience positive and negative qualia, 
then you could just never learn that goodness existed. Uh, mm-hmm. You might just be completely confused and baffled by the concept. And I suppose it's possible that there are things, other things that have intrinsic value that we just can't find out about because we can't experience the, or, or that uh, we are not them <laughs> and there's no way for us to learn, uh, which right. is kind of an interesting issue. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So if I have a doubt about the, the view that it's there. Something like that, yeah. It's important to allow ourselves to feel that cognitive dissonance, to, to, to hold competing views and to feel pulled in different directions. Mm. And we, we want to try to be coherent, but I don't think we should be coherent to the degree that we discard things that could be valuable pieces of evidence. Yeah. Okay. Another flavor of counter argument runs along the lines that your whole theory is misinterpreting in some way what we learn from our own subjective experiences. And, and I think this kind of mm-hmm. argument can take various different different forms. And I think it's quite hard to talk about because we just don't have very good language here. But here's where that kind of two different listeners put it. One was, I feel like the more natural picture of how pleasure involves the experience of value is that pleasure involves the representation of value, which would leave open whether or not that value is actually instantiated or not. Uh, and another another uh, listener wrote, how does she respond to evolutionary debunking? Isn't pain precisely a negative judgment about something programmed into us by evolution? If pain is a negative judgment instilled in us by evolution, then it isn't objectively bad by her own definition of objectivity as judgment uh, in- independence. What would you say to people like that? Well, I think, first of all, that it's the most common misunderstanding of what I'm saying to not... For, and not that they're misunderstanding it. That's not what I'm saying. But but it's really hard for people to understand, first of all, that I'm saying that it's pleasure and pain are basically non-representational. Mm. So at least they've understood that. Yeah. <laughs> first of all, at least they know what I'm saying. Um, so then why should we think that there is some part of pleasure or pain that is non-representational, mm. that isn't just sort of projecting the value onto other mm. things? And Part of the reason that I think that there's something non-representational here is that there do seem to be a lot of states where we can experience pleasure or pain, and it doesn't seem to be about anything else. Mm. So, like, you can just be euphoric, right? Especially, Mm. you know, in these cases where neuroscientists stimulate parts of the brain, they can create these feelings of just, like, pleasantness, and and people can... It's not about anything. They just Mm. feel you know, good. And you can have these states of dis-ease or even, again, in one of these neuroscientific cases, there was, I forget where it was, but stimulation in a certain part of the brain would create this feeling of dread, mm. but without any object. It was like just this terrible feeling. So people get that from night terrors when they wake up from this specific kind of, I'm not, I don't think, actually think it's a normal nightmare. It's a specific condition that people have where they wake up just feeling this intense sense of dread, which I, which I had mm. as a kid. And there is, it's not oh, about anything. It's in fact very confusing because you just feel dread for no reason about nothing, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. But sorry, go on. Yeah. So I think that's one piece of evidence. We don't, all, mm. we not always connecting it with an object, yeah. but also when we think about how the process of representation works, how would a brain state represent to you the goodness or badness of something else? I mean, there, there are lots of different theories and there are different ways that you could go about it. But it seems to me, based on the way that our minds represent to us other qualities out there in the world, like I mean, just think about like colors in the world. So some sort of reflectance property of these surfaces 
gets represented in our mind by a color quality mm-hmm. that we experience. Okay. Now, it's true that it is a representation, mm. but there's also the quality itself which you can you can investigate the internal quality of what it is like just the experiential quality of the redness mm. okay and this is what you know philosophers of mind have you know been taking really seriously for the first time in a long time mm. it's this idea there's something that it's like to have these experiences that it's not about how we're representing external objects but it's something that it's like to have the representation mm. so some people have this idea that, well, if it's a representation, that it doesn't have any internal character. But I think it actually, the internal character is what allows it to represent something outside of itself as mm. well. And it makes a lot of sense that we would represent the instrumental goodness or badness of something else by something that is intrinsically good or bad. And that, and for that reason, we're directly motivated to want to produce or to avoid yeah. When I try to introspect about this, and I don't find it easy, and you know, I focus on a positive sensation that I have, something that feels good, I don't feel like I'm kind of picturing some other, some like I'm representing something and then evaluating, is it good? It feels like I am the sensation and it is good. <laughs> to me, At least that's mm-hmm. how it feels for me. Or at least that, that's that, right. that's how I conceptualize what's what's going on in my mind. But for people who don't who introspect and don't feel that way, who think that they are instead evaluating the proposition that a representation of something is good, I'm not sure how to argue with. I'm not sure like where that debate <laughs> <But> goes. <laughs> I, I wonder if anybody besides a philosopher has this intuition. I see. Yeah. Uh, in quotes, like because it seems to me like it's very theory laden to mm. say, well, it's. We've added this concept of representation. It's representation, that, like that it must be quite... representational. Like that's the because one of the quotes that you give is something like I, the best way to think about it, or the best theory that we have is to think of it as representational. I, I, I just don't think that that's right. I don't think that mm. that's true to the actual experience. Mm. Like, yeah, it does some representational work, but we also feel like it's bad to like constantly be around things that we're representing to ourselves as bad. <laughs> like, that, just feeling those representations all the time are something that should be avoided, unless it's instrumentally useful in some way. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly, yeah, what, what the, what's the dialectic? What's the, what's the back and forth about this uh, topic of representation versus, versus direct, uh, d- direct acquaintance? What, one of the smartest uh, philosophers I know kind of takes this, takes this view that it actually is representation and, and judgment in a way that's not informative in some special way. I'll, I'll see if I can find the best piece mm-hmm. uh, that, that I can to defending that view. Because definitely it seems, it seems plausible because it is so hard to tease apart all of the things that are, that are, that are going on uh, through our subjective experience. It's definitely a line of argument that troubles me. No, it is. I think it's definitely something that people should be working on on both sides of the question to really understand, you know, the processes of representation. How does this happen in the brain? And then do they have these objective qualities as well or as a necessary part of what's going on? Yeah. I've been using this language that I like am the pleasure or I am the, the, the suffering. I think you don't use that, that, that kind of language. Is, um, is, is there a reason for that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't see any particular um, need to. And I feel like in some ways, like it invites people mm. to misunderstand what you're saying because, well, I'm not just that. I'm all of these other things as well. Um, but I do think that it's true that those experiences are 
constituting part of who we are. So they are part of our existence. Mm. If we think of ourselves as as these conscious beings, as our consciousness being who we are, mm. then yeah, they're part of us. Yeah, yeah. When we're experiencing them, yeah. If listeners wanted to go away and hear kind of more objections or uh, a, just a different take on on metaethics than than the one that uh, that you're offering, what's what's something they could potentially read? So the book that I was reading when I saw the need to develop this view um, would definitely provide a different perspective. Yeah. So that was uh, Alan Gibbard's book, Thinking How to Live, which I read as part of uh, Sharon Street's Metaethics course at NYU. Mm. Gibbard is an expressivist. What does that mean? So his idea is that what we're doing when we're talking about morality is we're expressing our intentions to make certain plans. Mm. We're expressing our plans to do certain things in the future or our intentions to make certain plans in counterfactual situations. He motivated his project by by saying, this is just what our concept of goodness is, is that, you know, it's just this planning to do something, right? Mm. I don't know if he says this specifically, but there are plenty of anti-realists who say things like this. Mm. So there's no deeper kind of way that things could matter except that we desire them or, you know, mm. we seek them out mm. and we p- plan to bring them about. And that just struck me as fundamentally wrong mm. that we do have a much deeper concept of something being good than just it being something that we seek or mm. desire. We have these experiences of pleasure and pain, which would seem to justify our desires. Yeah. So, when you experience pleasure, you're like if if you desired the thing that caused the pleasure ahead of time, then you say, mm. "Oh well, you know, I was right to desire this. Like it really is as good as I thought it would be." Mm. But if instead something we thought was going to be good that we were really looking forward to and you know making sure would happen, it brings us a lot of suffering. Like, oh, I was wrong to think that that thing was good. Like we we measure the goodness and badness of things against this experience mm. that we have that seems to justify mm. desires. So that's where the idea came from. But yeah, if you want to hear the opposite point of view, mm. that's one place that you can go for it. But there, but there's a lot of different kinds of anti-realism out there. Yeah. Are there any other kind of classic texts exp- expounding anti-realism that, that I guess you might learn if you did a grad philosophy course? So one of the books that we used actually in that same course was... I think it's called Moral Discourse and Practice. I mean, it, it, these days there's all sorts of meta-ethical collections, but I think that book, um, which was Darwall, Railton, maybe Gibbard even helped put that book together, um, I think it gives a really good overview of different realist and anti-realist perspectives and the different metaphysical, epistemological, conceptual questions there are there. And there may be better collections that are more recent, but I've been out of philosophy for the last 12 <laughs> years, so I don't have the most up-to-date literature to recommend to you, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, might, I might ask around for some other recommendations and we'll stick up, stick up links to, just, yeah, to some I, of, I some of the best great. summaries in the, uh, yeah, in, the, mm-hmm. in the show notes. Let's, let's move on and talk about the section of your book, uh, which is called The Practice of Utilitarianism and, and The Practice of Hedonism, where you think, what would this imply in real life, in, in, in actual situations, what, how, would a, how, how might a hedonist live and, 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 and how might they think? Now, I think there's maybe two reasons that this matters. One is that, as, you, as you'll explain, there's all of these practical considerations that cause the recommendations of hedonistic utilitarianism to converge on common sense behaviors and 
and the recommendations of many other moral systems to a degree that maybe is, is underappreciated. So in fact, yeah. uh, in as much as people uh, say hedonism can't be correct because it gives these absurd recommendations, in, in, many, like in many cases, that's actually mistaken. Or moral realism can't be true. If this is the only way to be a moral realist, then we should just get rid of it because hedonism is obviously a bunk. Yeah, yeah. So that's one important thing. And the other one is just, well, it'd be nice to know what, 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 what potentially matters. So what, what kind of recommendations right, might, might exactly. come out of this? So what should we do? <laughs> it's kind, of, it's kind yes. of the whole thing, right? Yeah. Okay. So in the book, you list three key practical instrumental considerations that appear in almost all actual situations in which we, we find ourselves that potentially can shift to a great extent uh, what, what hedonism would, would recommend. The three that you single out are uncertainty, the need for coordination, and motivational limitations, all of which we've briefly mentioned before. Uh, in brief, why is accounting for uncertainty a big deal for hedonism in, in, in real-world situations? So I think it's actually a big deal for any consequentialist views. So mm. let's be clear about that uh, up front. It's not particularly hedonism. It's any consequentialist, even if you have a very different idea of what welfare is. Mm. But the issue is that we are trying to make decisions about what's going to happen in the future. Mm. And obviously the future isn't here yet. So we're having to make our best possible predictions about this. Mm. And so we're going to have to base that on our past experience. Now, in the past, nothing has happened that is exactly like what's going to happen in the future, right? Mm. So we have to sort of try to look for similarities between the past and the future and, and say, okay, well, actions of this particular type in the past generally were disutilitous. Um, so they're probably going to be disutilitous in the future and so on. Mm. Now, where the uncertainty thing comes in is that we don't have all of the possible information in the world. <laughs> uh, this is going back to the experience machine thing. So we're not omniscient about the world. We're in a very limited situation, which means that we have to actually collect information to make our decisions. Mm. All right. But of course, collecting information has a cost. So we need to know, well, how much information should I collect to make any particular decision. So it's, you, there's going to be a certain point at which more information is more costly than it's probably going to be worth. Okay, so we're always going to be working with partial information. Given that partial information, what sort of decision should we make? Well, we've got to examine these different kinds of acts, like we said. All right, but how generally or narrowly should we specify the kinds of acts that we're investigating the utility of? All right, mm. so the more generally we specify them, the more relevant information we're going to have, right? Because the more past actions, the more examples of that action in the past we'll be able to look at. But some of them are probably going to be less relevant, right, to this case, right? So we, there's another part, you know, we want to, we want to more narrowly specify the case because we want to eliminate anything that's irrelevant to the way that this future action is going to turn out. So this is, I think, called the reference class problem. Yeah. Where it's, you can have a small sample of cases that are very similar to the one that you're considering and so seem especially relevant. Or you can have a very large sample of cases, many of which are not super similar to the, to the case that you're considering. Yeah. So when you have a small sample, okay, yeah, they're really similar. But because you have a small sample, something random could completely mm. disrupt your calculations or your predictions. Okay. So you want to balance these two things. Now, some interesting research that has been done by a lot of different people, obviously in decision theory and psychology and elsewhere. But some of it was put together by Gerd Gigerenzer. He's written several books on this, but the one that I talk about in The Feeling of Value is his book, Gut Feelings, which is just very interesting. And he says that the research shows that 
generally, in the situations that we actually experience, the best thing to do is make a decision based on the one factor that is the most correlated with the result that you're trying to achieve. So don't try to take into account, you know, three or four or five different factors. It doesn't actually make your prediction more accurate. Sticking with the one most correlated factor will actually provide you with the best predictions. So why this is interesting is that one of the objections that a lot of people bring to consequentialism in general and to utilitarianism and hedonistic utilitarianism in particular is to say that they don't take into account certain duties we have or certain classes of action that are just always wrong. Like it's, it's just always wrong to murder an innocent person or it's, mm. you know, it's wrong to tell lies. We have these certain classes of actions that we just shouldn't perform or only mm. in a very small number of cases. And what I'm trying to show here is that when you actually look at how to make decisions under conditions of uncertainty, what people are saying is, you should make your decisions based on very rules of thumb. A very small number of factors. Yeah, ve- these very simple rules of thumb. And so when you look in the world and it said, okay, yeah, if you look at murders, yeah, they generally have really bad <laughs> outcomes, right? Um, so unless in your particular case, you have so much evidence to show you that the things that have made murders bad in the past are not going to be applicable here. Unless Mm. the positive value of it is just astronomical, you should not murder someone. And that's the rule of thumb that you should go by. So I think there is a parallel between the practice of utilitarianism and these deontological duty-based conceptions of ethics. Yeah, I see. So basically what you're saying, so one thing that you can in general throw at uh, consequentialism is to say, it's impossible to do what you're asking. It's a re- <laughs> yeah. you're, you're saying <laughs> yeah. that every time I make a decision, I should stop and think about all of the consequences of my action for all time and then try to estimate how all of the goodness and all of the badness that will result and, and net it out. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good way to... <laughs> that's a good way not to produce good consequences. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to spend all and, your and time saying, worrying about the consequences. And, and the response is... Humans are exceedingly finite creatures relative to the size of the universe and and the potential uh, consequences of our actions. And the best decision procedure for a consequentialist to follow in practice as a person is to be simplifying the decision massively and overwhelmingly following, you know, rules of good conduct, trying to be a virtuous person because it's been demonstrated that demonstrating that they have it, that that cultivating these virtues in general is good. Uh, and sure, in any particular case, it might not be so, but it would take so much effort to figure out which ones they were, even if you even if you were smart enough to, to do so, that it wouldn't be wouldn't be worth the cost. Right. So this is one way that uh, utilitarianism in practice just comes to resemble <laughs> what everything else recommends anyway. Yeah. Just like don't murder, don't steal, except in exceptional, truly bizarre situations. It does. And, and I do want to emphasize that it's not that we shouldn't do more research on the value of different kinds of actions, because absolutely we should. And as a culture, as a, as a whole, I think it pays to actually look at the effects that our actions have on other people. I mean, with the abortion debate that's raging in the United States right now, I think it pays to actually look at what the consequences are going to be of the kinds of legislation that are being made. It's not that we should just, you know, we'll go with what our, whatever our intuitive feeling is about our duties. No, but certainly in each individual case, yeah, you have to go with sort of what the already established 
wisdom is mm. about these things. And then hopefully, you know, over time, our culture will continue to develop better and better wisdom. Yeah, I guess, yeah, this is a slight aside, but consequentialism also helps to ground where these rules or virtues come from. Because in, in many of the other theories, you have this mystery of, so we think it's bad to steal, but how would we know that? Uh, and we think it's good to cultivate kindness, but like what makes that true and how would we know? Whereas if you're saying, well, these are practical implications of the goal of improving the consequences of our actions, then it's very clear uh, where, where those rules of conduct and, and those virtues that we want to cultivate are originating from. Right. And it helps, too, when those duties or values conflict with each other, mm. which they they often oh, do. Yeah. You know, should you save a life or should you tell the truth? Well, mm. how, how could we figure that out unless we think about well, what the consequences are going to be? Right, right. Moving on to the second one. Yeah, what's the importance of considering the need for coordination? So this kind of piggybacks on the uncertainty question because coordination is important because we're trying to figure out what the consequences of our actions are going to be. A lot of times this depends on what actions other people are going to take. Hmm. So unless we know what choices they're going to make, we don't know what is the most utilitarian thing for us to do. So it's not only helpful to have rules of thumb uh, because of our for our own individual cases, but it's helpful for us to follow general rules in acting because it makes our behavior more predictable to other people. Now, it's not always important that our behavior be predictable to other people. You know, when we're just doing things that really only affect ourselves, we're not going to, we don't really need any coordination between people. That doesn't matter so much. But when we're acting in the public sphere, when we're thinking about whether to tell the truth about something in a public way mm. um, about, you know, what's happening political or something moral, that's going to have effects on a lot of other people. I think we need to be able to trust that other people are generally going to tell the truth. Like our, our society is going to function much better. We're going to be much better at promoting pleasure if we can generally trust that other people are doing their best to represent the world correctly. Okay, and then the third one. Yeah, uh, what's the importance of motivational uh, limitations in, in, in applied hedonistic utilitarianism? So here the idea is kind of related to perspectival bias. We have motivational biases, right? We're most motivated by our own pleasure and pain and that of people that we care about that are in our emotional circle with us. And, you know, we can try to stretch ourselves and make ourselves, you know, care about other people more and, and certainly most of us care about other people to some degree, but we still seem to have just this innate motivation to care about ourselves. We're just more motivated, you know, mm. even if we recognize that that's not a great way to be, that's just mm. how we are. Yeah. So it's really useful when we're organizing society to have people's actions have most effect on themselves and the people that are close to them, mm. right? So because those are the cases where they're their actions are going to be most likely to line up with the actual utility of what's going on. So it's not great to to have your actions controlling the lives of a bunch of people that you don't really know or care about. Not going to produce much utility. Um, yeah. But also important that, that we have a society where people can expect that if they pursue certain personal projects for themselves, that other people aren't going to interfere. And um, this is also connected to the coordination problem, right? Like we have to have some sort of way to predict that the actions that we take now are going to lead to certain consequences for the people that we care about in the future. And so if we had a world that was full of 
utilitarian busybodies who are constantly going around, you know, to other people's houses and making sure that, you know, they're doing the most utilitous thing or, you know, interrupting what they think is the most utilitous for something else to happen, then Mm. I think overall or over time, this ends up diminishing the motivation that any of us have to work on our particular projects because we can't know whether they're actually going to bear fruit. Like other people might decide that that's not a great project and take it away. So Mm. we need to have spheres of some level of autonomy. Mm. Uh, I think it's really important that we have that for our own lives, our own bodies, but maybe for some measure of personal property as well, Mm. um, that when, you know, one person is taking care of this, you know, certain piece of land, say, and it's going to be their responsibility and they're going to, you know, benefit from it or experience the negative consequences if they don't take care of it, then people are much more likely to take care of land than if, you know, it's just a free-for-all. Totally, yeah. And and I think that that's a basis for some measure of rights, rights to life and to your body and rights to some degree of property. Yeah, I guess there's one reason why utilitarians, so many lean towards liberalism as a way of organizing society. I guess kind of communist societies, they move just partially in the direction of people being able to meddle in, in one another's lives. So, so so, in our society, we do meddle in one another's lives through the legal system, through through politics and government a bunch. Communist societies go a bit further, like not certainly not all the way, and, and it produces all kinds of uh, maladies and problems. I think it is very interesting that economists think of this, uh, well, the issue with communism, I think they call the socialist knowledge problem, which is that people end up meddling in situations that they don't understand. And, and, and I think it is interesting that for, for practical reasons, even if we were all totally committed to hedonistic utilitarianism, we would think it was good that we should all act as if we cared more about our own well-being than about the well-being of others, because nobody is in a better position to help us than us, because we know <laughs> our preferences yes, better than anyone else possibly Anne can. Rand, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I mean, so no, she's the most extreme <laughs> version of that, but yeah. Yeah. But I think it, it is true that, I mean, I mean, we see this, you know, when a friend is struggling and maybe engaging in being a bit self-destructive and we try to help them, we just realize how hard it can be to help someone else when you're not them, that there's many actions that people can take that, to help themselves that just no, no amount of someone else <laughs> or like it's extremely hard for anyone else to substitute. And so I think, that, and, and just because we have so much more knowledge about our own circumstances right. and, and we are the people who decide our own movements, <laughs> that gives us yes. a strong reason to really focus on the consequences of our actions for ourselves. Yeah, the knowledge question and the motivation question, both absolutely. Yeah. Related, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, all of these things, the, the uncertainty and the motivational limitations and coordination, all... I mean, they're all... Yeah, in there together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think getting back to what you're talking about, liberalism and communism, I think, you know, these are questions that we're constantly trying to Mm. decide, like, where should we fall on the spectrum? Exactly what kind of rights should we have? And I think utilitarianism and hedonistic utilitarianism actually gives us a framework for answering these questions. It it lets us know, like, what we should be investigating in order to, to decide. Yeah, and, and how to strike the right balance between the different uh, different competing considerations. Yeah, because it's not just that rights somehow fell out of the sky, <laughs> but that they're really, really useful. And how can we make them work in the best way possible? Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about this beautiful example uh, in in the book that you that you go through in, in extensive detail, and which I which I found really entertaining to to read. It goes through this thought experiment that is often thrown in the face of consequentialism as a potential counterexample uh, to to what to consequentialist recommendations. And this is the idea that imagine that you have one healthy person and five sick people, each of whom need a different organ in order to survive. And it seems like you could 
if you wanted to, uh, you're, you're a surgeon, presumably in this case, you could secretly kill the, the healthy person and then take the different organs and save the lives of the five. And so the argument goes, wouldn't utilitarianism, potentially both hedonistic and otherwise, recommend doing this? And, and it also, isn't this repugnant? Now, you argue for all kinds of different reasons that, in fact, it's very unclear that utilitarianism would recommend saying yes to that scenario. Yeah. Yeah, do you want to explain some of the reasons? Yeah. So, I mean, there's sort of more concrete examples of the, the three reasons that we've talked about. So we've yeah. talked about, well, why are, you know, rights are important? Why is it important that people have a right to their own body and that somebody's not, they don't have, when they go into the hospital, they're not going to be afraid that somebody's going to cut them up to save five other people. Mm. So this is actually the, like, the last thing that I talk about in the book, but we'll start there. What would happen in society in general if we did make this a general rule that this is how we operated. And I think we were talking about communism. We were kind of talking about communism down to the point of sharing our bodies, right? Mm. And I think it's not going to take many years of a medical system (laughs) where this is openly the way that we operate Mm. for people's overall health to degrade dramatically because in this kind of system, you're going to be rewarding people who don't take care of their bodies because they're like, well, if I have a problem, you know, if I have organ failure, then somebody else will provide the organ that I need. Mm. And at the same time, you're discouraging people from taking really good care of themselves because that just makes them better and better candidates for um, giving (laughs) their organs to other people. So everybody's going to like try to take the worst care possible of themselves and everybody's going to end up worse off in the end. Yeah. The surgeons are okay. prowling the streets looking for the people who are most ripped to, <laughs> yeah. to harvest their very, very healthy organs, <laughs> hypothetically. Sorry, go on. So work on that beer belly. Yeah. Um, so that's a good reason not to do this openly. Mm. All right. But but in the example that you're talking about, we're talking about doing this secretly. So this mm. question will, you know, maybe if we do it secretly, it will be okay. Mm. So there are still some other things that are important. First of all, we should talk about the drawbacks of secrecy itself. Mm. So we talked about the importance of truth-telling, but also, relatedly, if you're doing something like this, like performing a surgical operation, and you're trying to keep it hush-hush from all the other people in the hospital, you're not going to be able to get advice from other people Mm. about whether this really is a good idea in this particular case, whether this person really is a good candidate or these people really are good candidates. So you're not going to have the benefit of their advice and if, if anything goes wrong, you're not going to be able to appeal to them for help with, I mean, mm. uh, with the worry of being discovered and just your ability to gain more information. So you're going to have a lot of uncertainty if you're not able to ask for information from other people. Yeah. Okay. So that's so that's one thing. But then I also think we need to think about the concrete implications of this kind of surgeries or, or of saying that this is the, the trade-off that we ought to make. Mm. So why is it the best case scenario that we take a healthy person and we give their organs to five people who have had some kind of organ failure? Aren't there other, perhaps better ways to bring about more pleasure and pain overall? Mm. So we don't want to neglect some possibly superior alternatives. For instance, what if we take the organs of somebody who... or we wait for the next person to die, and maybe they're not an organ donor, but we decide to take their organs anyway. Now, mm. granted, maybe there are reasons that we shouldn't do that either, but it does seem less bad than taking a living person <laughs> and taking their organs. So, mm. like, maybe we should consider that alternative. But also this idea that, I mean, in, in the practical situation, 
a lot of medical concerns that go into this question. Is it really going to be better to give these organs to five people who obviously they have some kind of condition, at least with technology the way that it currently is? Organ transplants aren't 100% successful. A lot of times people still have a lot of health issues afterward. Is their quality of life and the, the length of life that they have is it really a five to one ratio? It probably is still a positive balance if we're not thinking about, you know, the effects on society as a whole. Mm. But I don't think it's five to one as far as the benefits to the costs. Mm. And, and these are all things that I think you would need to think through if you were actually going to carry this out. And mm. again, if you're being secret about it, you don't have anybody else to like talk to and be like, well, do you think this is really a good idea or not? Have I thought this through correctly? Right. Yeah. <laughs> So I think there are lots of reasons to think that this um, is bad and that there are many better ways to approach the need for organs in people. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, another one that you haven't gone through is uh, what would happen if this plot is uh, discovered, which is pretty likely. <laughs> and it's like yeah. very reasonable that people Eventually. would have a concern intuitively that maybe <laughs> if they tried to pull off a scheme like this, it could go awry and people might find out. And of course, this would lead to catastrophically bad consequences. Yeah, but we could go through a few of them. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, there's like the immediate bad consequences to the people, to the person that actually did this. Like they could spend, they're probably going to spend the rest of their life in prison and all of this. But as for, you know, society as a whole, one of the things that we talked about earlier was the the way that this is going to affect other people's motivations to take care of themselves. All right. So some people who are saying, who say that, the utilitarian reasons not to perform this because you're worried about what the societal consequences are going to be of discovery. So people will say, well, it's not really as strong as the utilitarian is making it out to be. Like, if the, if one act of this is discovered, like, it's not really going to change people's behaviors in the future. Mm. And that's probably true. Like, it might have a small effect, although... A small effect spread over all of the, you know, hundreds of millions of people who are going to find out about this might yeah. be pretty big. Hmm. But also you have to con- you have to consider the fact that at some point that there may be a threshold effect. There may be a, a tipping point where enough of these things come to light hmm. that suddenly people, you know, just completely stop worrying about their own health. Or completely stop trusting the medical system. Well, well yes. Or, or fear yes. that they're going to be snatched yeah. off the street as they're walking about. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. So all of the things that, all of the other good that the medical system is doing, suddenly it's not able to do. I mean, yeah, I mean, we saw something similar to this during COVID, hmm. right? People were scared to to come out and get medical hmm. treatment. And a lot of people suffered not from COVID itself, but from the fear of going out to the hospital. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think in the case where uh, a single person contemplates doing this, this consideration is just so enormously decisive by itself because the possibility of them being discovered is pretty high. And if they were discovered, this would be an international sensation, the discovery that a surgeon had done this. (laughs) Hundreds of millions of people would find out. Many people would find it distressing in itself to learn about this. They would be less likely to go into hospital. Uh, like you would lose any capacity to do good in the rest of your life because you're sent to prison. It's like, <laughs> uh, yeah. Then you can try to change the thought experiment to say, no, you're absolutely sure it will never be discovered. But again, all of our intuitions through life are... <laughs> uh, that you shouldn't do horrific things in the expectation that people will never find out, bleed over into our disgust reaction at the prospect of doing this. Anyway, uh, I, I think basically the, the bottom line is that utilitarians often don't recommend, well, in practice, 
and in principle do not recommend the things that are thrown uh, in, in their face. Right. Now let's change the case a little bit and let's say that somehow by killing an innocent person you could save a hundred innocent lives. Um, I think there's... I, 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 don't, I don't know exactly what, what, what the case should be. And, and okay, and it's not going to be a secret. People are going to find out that you did this. Uh, and indeed, you might be proud that you did it because you're going to argue, well, I had to kill this one person. It was the only way to save these other hundred people. Mm-hmm. In that case... I can see the argument against it. I can also see the case in favor of it. We do kind of face these conflicting intuitions. And I think most people would, again, they might feel conflicted, but they might say that they would do it. And so again, well, just, kinda, it does seem yeah. like for anybody, there is a certain point be a level. where if yeah. there's enough people saved, then they're okay with it. Exactly. So then kind of we're just yeah, haggling on the level. And I think that, again, can kind of be explained and made consistent with the fact that we're kind of doing this consequentialist calculation to some extent, trying to take into account how much this violates good norms of behavior, trying to account for our potential bias in favor of actions that feel good for us, trying to take into account how much this this is going to screw up the coordination across society, and and on and on and on. Our intuitions, actually, I would say, when you think about all of the different things that have to be have to have to go into this into this cake, all of the different ingredients, our intuitions are actually remarkably in tune with what actually would be good from a consequentialist point of view. Uh, in in in, the, in these instances, the, the the tension is much less than than might be might be initially supposed. It does seem so. It, it, I, I like that you say that it's remarkable because I I think it is. I mean, it's pretty amazing that we have come up with a system that does work as well as it does hmm. from a utilitarian standpoint, even though. Most of us are not consciously utilitarians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We wouldn't we wouldn't use the label, but but we do seem to ultimately make our decisions in that way. Yeah, right. Okay, so let's let's push on uh, a little bit to maybe some cases where hedonistic utilitarianism could give could have implications that people might find reasonably counterintuitive that that they don't often consider. I think one that really stands out to me is that I didn't know this, but um, apparently people when they lose the ability to feel pain in parts of their body, they stop taking care of those parts of their body. So what, one thing is that they can't tell when they're hurting it. So the, the pain is useful as an information source, mm-hmm. but it turns out that it's also incredibly important as a motivation source because even when you add kind of prosthetics, uh, kind of medical devices that are there to indicate tissue damage. Damage. turns out that people who can't feel pain they, they prefer to just turn off the buzzer that, that's telling them that they're, that they're hurting their, 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 they're damaging their body uh, which is which yeah. is kind of remarkable or at least I'm, I'm sure this doesn't happen every time but like reasonably often often enough they just decide to dismiss <laughs> the notification to the point right. that, that they still hurt themselves and then you can try to motivate people by having those prosthetics actually uh, you know zap them on the skin on some other part where they can still feel the sensation again in that case if they have the option to turn off the buzzer they turn off the they, they turn off the zapping reasonably often such that they still nonetheless <laughs> hurt themselves so ability to feel physical pain is very important uh, as yeah. it seems as, as, as a motivation device. But it seems like couldn't we create motivation a different way? Couldn't we try to change people and potentially animals such that when we're not damaging ourselves, we feel just incredible bliss. We feel fantastically positive. And then as kind of punishment and motivation and information, when we're causing tissue damage, we simply feel less wonderful. <laughs> we still feel good, so there's no suffering involved. <laughs> However, some of the bliss is withdrawn. Now, this would be seemingly good from a hedonistic utilitarian point of view because we might still be informed and motivated to take good actions, but you could almost entirely get rid of suffering and instead just have much higher levels of, of well-being at all points in time. Right. What, what, what do you make right. of that, if it was possible? Well, I think it would be great if it was possible. <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah, that that would be the way to go. I have serious reservations about whether it is possible. Mm. And so I was thinking a lot about this because you told me ahead of time that you wanted to talk about this. And 
I was trying to think about, you know, why do we have this system where there's actually negative value? It's not just, you know, not great value and little more value and and the best value. Mm. And it seems to me that we need a state where in the present, we're feeling something that is actually negative, that it would be better if it didn't exist, Mm. because that is more motivating for us to get rid of whatever the stimulus is that's creating that pain than it is just to have the idea that, well, if I did something else, I'd feel even more pleasure mm. because that is depending on you imagining something that doesn't exist, that this mm. this other state that would be better. Whereas when you're experiencing the pain, it's like, clearly this is, I just want to get rid of this. I mean, it does feel to me that if I was feeling really fantastic for some reason, and then I took some action that then made me, made that be withdrawn, that I would be motivated at least to some degree Mm -hmm. to undo that and and get back to feeling even better. But it is true, I suppose, that the absence of pleasure is less kind of immediately grabbing. It doesn't scream at your attention in the same way that physical pain does. Yeah, well, and I wonder if there's a connection with what we were talking about with the the status quo bias. So if your current status is okay, then it's less important to you to like seek out, you know, how else it could be better. Whereas if your current status is not okay, then you're definitely looking for ways to make this better. Yeah. So a good reason to think that you're right is that evolution has designed us the way that it has. So evolution had to design minds that are effective at survival and replication and so on. And it's included suffering in that. Right. Rather than mere withdrawal of pleasure, even though presumably evolution could have designed it this other way where it's merely gradients of positivity. I suppose... We might find that perhaps gradients of pleasure is less motivating, but maybe it's it's sufficiently motivating to get us by and and we gain so much from the fact that we no longer have to suffer and that we feel great all the time that it would still be a, a, net, a net benefit. Um, yeah. even, even if maybe we have to have a bit more conscientiousness and diligence towards paying attention to harmful things. I think it's worth looking into. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, if, maybe not if, now, but maybe in hundreds yeah, of years time. When well, yeah, tech, no, yeah. I mean, but as we get a better understanding of how mm. our qualitative states are produced and how they motivate us and things. Yeah, that's something that we sh- there's no reason not to explore that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, people think painkillers are useful now when people experience pain and it's not useful. So this seems kind of like a scaled up version of that or a much more extreme version. Yeah. Whenever I think about taking painkillers, well, and granted, I don't experience a lot of intense pain. I never get migraines or anything like that. But I do always have this like utilitarian thing in my head that's like, but maybe it's really important that I stay in contact with the state of my body that's having this issue. Mm. Like if I take the painkiller, I won't know whether things are better or they're worse. So yeah. I do always have that conversation that with concern. myself. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I guess the, the times that we take painkillers are when we've already responded to the to the problem as much as we think that we practically can. And then we're just like, okay, the pain's not helpful anymore. <laughs> the pain's no longer really... Uh, well, that's or- when we should take them, but I'm not sure that everybody uses mm. them that way. I think in the same way that, you know, well, the people, opiates, t- they yeah. turn off... Yeah, they turn off the thing that's supposed to alert them that they're hurting their hand or something. You know, it's causing pain in them. But if they can just turn the pain off, Mm. they're obviously they're not concerned about the hurt to their hand. Yeah, that's really interesting. So if we can disconnect our mental states from our body, we seem to bring ourselves to care less about our bodies. Okay, here's here's another potential uh, wacky implication, especially, I suppose, once technology frees us from the constraints that we're potentially used to and that our intuitions are designed around. So 
it seems like maybe at some point we'll be able to understand more about how the human brain works and we'll be able to study the circuits that seem to always be like lighting up and associated with the experience of negative qualia. And then we might think, well, maybe at that point we'll figure out what information is being processed, like what fundamentally is happening in the brain that is generating the negative qualia. Oh, sorry, not negative, uh, positive qualia, positive qualia okay. in this case. So we figure out um, what happens in the brain that causes pleasure. And then we might think, well, could we design a machine that does that outside of the, outside of the human brain? Could we find a synthetic way to generate what the human brain is doing when it experiences pleasure? In the same way that we've kind of designed computers that do analytical tasks that figure out what the human brain was doing when it recognized objects, or at least they, they do some kind of simulacrum of, of, of what the human brain does. Then we're off to the races. <laughs> then we can just potentially create limitless amounts of pleasure on computers, say. I suppose there's going to be some epistemic questions about how will we ever know that we've managed to, to succeed with this. But how do you feel about that uh, in, in principle, at least? Yeah, we have to make sure that our computers can introspect and tell us how they're feeling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, when you start thinking about, well, what we would what would we have to do to put that in place? Going to have to create the part of the machine that's creating the pleasure, mm. right? But then you're also going to have to have some kind of system that's monitoring that, that's monitoring any outside threats to the future ability of this machine to continue producing energy. this pleasure, right? You're going to have to feed it whatever wastes it produces. You're going to have to get rid of those. Like, mm. so it starts to... Starting to sound like a person. <laughs> it started, yeah, a little bit. Like, maybe evolution already did this, <laughs> Yeah. And we're one of the results of it. Mm. Because my initial intuition when I think, okay, well, maybe the most moral thing that, or the, you know, the best thing that we can do for the world is to create these machines that just experience pleasure 24 7. That seems morally repugnant to me. But then when you think about what would that machine actually be like, and what, mm. the more that so you make it actually agent. able to function in the world, the more it starts to seem like something that we actually would care about. Yeah. But on the other hand, on the other hand, maybe that's just wishful thinking. And maybe there are states of the world, you know, including, you know, maximal pleasure states for the world that would be good, but that we just don't like. That we as human beings, we're going to look at that and we're going to be don't like... look nice to us. Yeah, going to be like, ugh, like... If that's what life's about, I'm not, I don't care about this project anymore. Mm. We may not be able to appreciate that value sort of from the point of view of the universe to use mm. their title. Yeah, it's so we may not be able to look at things from that point of view. Mm. We may never be able to have a strong positive intuition that is equal to what that True would actually be like. And especially, yeah, especially, I mean, even now when we're talking about the pleasure enjoyed by you know, people and other sentient beings all over the world, like the sheer numbers, like we can't represent to ourselves the actual value of those numbers. I mean, we can we can rationally, you know, make calculations about what outweighs what, but our intuitions, I don't think, can even get close to understanding how much value there would actually be if everybody in the world was blissful all the time. Yeah, it's interesting that you don't find that um, intuitively appealing. Because I think if I imagine such a world where we have figured out how to produce enormous amounts of pleasure uh, kind of synthetically, so to speak, then I think that I would just be like so like happy about that and so so stoked to create more of this because I would just, mm. and, and I would do it the same way that I achieve empathy for other people or for other animals by thinking like I imagine the best day, the best experience that I've ever had. And then I'm like, they, they tell me this server farm is producing a million times as much pleasure as like you've ever experienced. And I'll just be like, wow, that's so good. <laughs> that's like, that's amazing. 
uh we've won <laughs> yeah maybe i'm just not making it concrete enough to myself and so my like yeah. difficulty empathizing with computers is mm. is interfering there maybe i could get better at that it is interesting that i think the intuition does change a lot and it changes for me as well if you think of just like <laughs> just a server farm that's just sitting there or oh, it just looks like a normal set of computers versus a being that can communicate to you how it's feeling and indicate yep. to you what's happening internally and saying like, right. I am just feeling incredible. You cannot imagine like the sense of enlightenment and brilliance of, of, of my life. In that case, I don't even really have to stretch to, uh, to achieve empathy. I'll just be like, wow, this is fantastic. A person having mm -hmm. an amazing, amazing, a life better than I could ever possibly imagine. Um, isn't, isn't that excellent? Yeah, it's really, it's all in the details of how you describe the thought experiment and how you represent it to yourself, yeah. I feel like, which is... And that's the problem yeah. with going with people's evaluative judgments of situations rather <laughs> than the what we really know, which is that pleasure is good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're out of time. But yeah, I'd love to just as a, as a, as a, as a final thing, talk about what are you working on next? Um, what's, 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 what's the next book? Well, actually, it's a great time to ask that question because mm. I just got a grant from the Future Fund with an effective mm. altruist organization, the Future Fund regranting program in particular, mm. to work on a follow-on book to the feeling of value. Mm. So going more deeply into both the theoretical and the practical aspects of this, but on the theoretical side, specifically integrating this meta-ethical view with what's going on in philosophy of mind right now and mm. it, trying to understand the nature of qualia how widely distributed are qualia in the world what's the relationship between qualitative states and causality mm. slash motivation so i'm gonna get to really dive into all of this and look at a lot of the recent stuff that's been going on in meta ethics well because there have been some interesting crossovers already happening between these areas which really wasn't happening the last time i did philosophy 12 years ago so it's so interesting to see how the field has been changing and i'm really looking forward to seeing how all of these new methods and new concepts and, and way of looking at these things can be applied to this view yeah, fantastic. Regular listeners will know we have this epic five-hour-long interview with David Chalmers where we talk about the many different <laughs> Yeah, I've listened theories. to part of that. <laughs> part of it. I'm very <laughs> understandable. Um, yeah, where Chalmers um, works through some of the many different theories that philosophers yeah. and scientists have come up with over the years for why on earth does it feel like something to be a person and what is the nature of consciousness, uh, a question yeah. that remains very, very mysterious. So one of the theories is called eliminative, eliminative reductivism, which is basically mm -hmm. saying you think you're conscious, but you're not really conscious. You're, it's, it's an illusion. It's right. kind of a mistake. There is no such thing. I think your theory of ethics here is, I think, intention slash conflict with that. If that's true, then I, this I, theory of... Absolutely. <laughs> Let me just say, yeah. <laughs> that's it. But yeah, but that's also a crazy view. So <laughs> it, it is counterintuitive. But is, is, is your view, like, does it go more easily or less easily with, with, with other theories of what consciousness is? It's certainly compatible with various types of physicalism, as mm. long as it's a type of physicalism that acknowledges that there's something that it's like to be mm. that physical thing or that physical event um, or that relation, or whatever it is. So as long as you can have qualitative states, then mm. I think that it's, it's compatible. Okay, yeah, it does seem. It, I guess this is one thing you'll probably develop in in the in, in the book a bunch and have a chance to think about more. 
uh, it does seem like it's compatible with a very wide range of, or like, in fact, almost any theory of what consciousness is, as long as that theory includes it, there being some subjective experience and that's a real thing. Right. But I think also, I think that looking at pleasure and pain and the roles that they play in our understanding of morality, but also in our motivation, I think it could be really useful in understanding what qualia are and why they're there to begin with. So yeah. I think it's an important datum in philosophy of mind, these normative experiences. Totally. One actual final question now, uh, just to, to leave the audience with a, with a kind of tantalizing, uh, I think it's fair to say kind of, kind of edgy idea in, in philosophy. So one of the central mysteries in moral philosophy has always been, yeah, how would we learn about the existence of moral facts? Because it seems like those facts wouldn't be, uh, the uh, philosophers say, causally efficacious. So how do we know that the sun exists? Because the sun has a causal effect on us via the light that travels and hits our eyes and then uh, the signals go into our brain. That the sun can causally affect us and so we can observe it and tell that it's there. But it seems like moral properties don't operate in, in a causal, they, they don't have causal interactions with us. And so it seems hard for us to discover them in the way that we discover physical things. And likewise, with all, like with most ideas of good and bad and valuable and, and disvaluable and so on. But you maybe have a theory that in fact, value uh, and moral facts, in fact, are causally efficacious uh, in, in the world. Uh, do, do you want to explain uh, how that how that could possibly be true? Yeah, so I think they're causally efficacious because they are properties of our consciousness. And I think that our consciousness is causally efficacious. Now, not everybody mm. th thinks that. So the versions of physicalism that are epiphenomenal, that say what it's like to be something in qualia are there, but they don't really do any causal work. The world isn't causally different because of them. They wouldn't agree with this part of my view, but maybe they're separable. But I think that that's a real problem for epiphenomenalists, mm. not just about normative qualia, but all qualia, if they think we have them, but they don't affect anything, then that's including the fact that they don't affect the way that we talk about them, right? So when I ask you, are you experiencing quality? Is there anything that's like to be you, Rob? And, and you say yes. Well, I can't trust that because there's no causal relationship between what you say and what you're feeling, according right. to epiphenomenalism. I think it's really important that when we introspect on what's going when we are reflecting on our own qualitative states that we do feel like the feeling that we have is affecting our response to somebody mm. that we wouldn't make the same response to them if we were experiencing something different or or nothing at all qualitatively maybe it's an illusion maybe there's a way that you could explain away that illusion i think that's more possible that that illusion could be explained away than the illusion that mental states exist at all or phenomenal mental states exist at all mm. but i still think it's really odd for any philosopher of mind to when they're thinking about how they are in the world and, and, and their direct acquaintance with what it's like to be this conscious creature to just throw out <laughs> this mm. uh, this feeling that we have that our conscious states are causally efficacious yeah it maybe instead we should we should try to take that seriously and see if there's some kind of theory where this could actually be true, especially because we don't understand what causality is. Mm. You know, we just see that certain events happen together, but we don't understand what it is that makes them happen. But maybe yeah. in our experience of conscious states, maybe we're actually sort of getting an inside scoop on how causality happens in the world. 
Yeah. So, so, so just to flesh out the, the, the difference that it would make, I, I guess one model that is consistent with uh, your, your, your moral realism is to say people that uh, when something bad happens to them, it feels bad. It, uh, it produces this, uh, this property of ought not to be-ness. And also they act to evade that sensation, but for a different reason. But on, on this model where, in fact, the, sensa- the properties of the sensation itself are causally efficacious, you would say they experience a sensation, it uh, has this negative qualia, and that's what causes the being to act to avoid it. Um, it's, the, it's the nature of mm-hmm. the feeling that is causing, uh, that, that is driving the behavior like in a way that couldn't be otherwise, which I find just a super tantalizing... I, I suspect that this, while this is super cool, it, it might not really work out. I, 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 can, see, see, I can see some problems <laughs> right, with it, you know. but it's a super tantalizing idea. Uh, I, I, I would it's love something for that to... should at least be explored in, in more depth. And that, that's part of what I want to do in, in this book, at least go a little bit farther than some other people have. I mean, because people have put forward views like this. You know, Alfred North Whitehead is probably the most famous with his whole process philosophy, this idea that, yeah, qualia are causally efficacious. And with the, you know, the return to panpsychism these days in, in philosophy of mind is becoming much more popular. Maybe people are going to be more interested in what Whitehead had to say about that. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to read the book. Uh, my <laughs> guest today has been Sharon Hewitt-Rollett. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Sharon. Thank you. Great talking to you, Rob. First today, I want to let you know that we've got two new interviews on our other show, 80K After Hours, which you might want to check out. They're both experiments with what happens when I interview someone for an hour without having done much preparation at all. And the episodes are Andres Jimenez-Soria on the Shrimp Welfare Project and Kuhan Jayapragasan on Effective Altruism University Groups. And a second notification is that we're looking for another audio editor to join our podcasting team. We're hoping to create a lot more content for both the 80,000 Hours podcast and 80K After Hours, and we could really use some extra help to make that practical. You'd be working with our lead audio engineer, Ben Cordell, on both shows, and this part-time remote role would include audio mastering, removing silences, taking out filler words, and generally making us and the people we talk to sound smarter than we actually are in real life. We're looking for someone with at least a year of experience doing broadly similar work, and ideally someone who gets what we're trying to do and is excited about more of it existing. So if you want to get paid competitive industry rates to listen to 80,000 Hours podcasts or know someone we should reach out to who might be interested in that, please let us know by sending an email to podcast at 80,000hours.org. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ryan Kessler. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.